welcome to all the explorers of the Spider-Verse. This is Marvelous Demystifiers, episode four. Man, I'm excited for this one. How you doing, gentlemen? Fantastic, brother. How are you? I saw you repping your Doctor Strange shirt. Oh, look at me. Old school. Gotta go silver age. Let's see. It's not, not gonna Kirby. wear that Iron Man hat the whole time, huh, Gabe? You're muted too, by the way, buddy. Gabriel's muted. We'll get there though. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so we've got a lot of, I would say, ground to cover, but it's more like astral territory <laughs> to cover. It's going to be big. 52 yeah. pictures, huh? Yeah, I grabbed 52 screenshots from the film and I was trying to be conservative. So. We'll do our best. I mean, it seems like they keep getting bigger and longer. This is a shorter movie than the Spider-Man one we did last time, but let's see. I guess we better probably just dive right in, right? I'm sure that we're raring to go. I thought that maybe a good way to begin would be to, <laughs> other than welcome everybody in the live chat, Loco, Dimension K, Limond, everybody. What up, gang? I'm really happy to see you all here. I thought... You know, maybe Gordy could give us uh, his best synopsis of Doctor Strange as a character. You know, it doesn't have to be super long and elaborate because we'll be exploring a lot of that as we go. But I'm sure you have something to say. Yeah. Uh, like, so Doctor Strange, I've, I kind of felt like I didn't want to prep too much for this one because I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Came out in 2016 and I was a, I was already a a big Doctor Strange fan anyway. Like I've got, I mean, this shit's just laying around, right? <laughs> so um like it's always been the radar, you know. Um, because ever since understanding that, you know, magic is real, that every myth, every story is something it has a an element of truth in it. And uh, all of these characters, all of these superheroes, there is an, there are elements of reality in those stories. And whether we want to use these as inspiration or like in the, I think what we'll go to in this conversation is kind of like the, uh, either you go to the good wizard side or the bad wizard side, understanding that magic is a real thing and it's how you choose to use it. Um, I think is always the lesson in whatever power that is that you have in whatever point in your life you are. Um, but I love Dr. Strange because it is the most realistic to me. Um, because you can utilize a sort of, you can um, manipulate your energy fields that, and energy fields that are around us all the time anyway. Um, I don't, I shouldn't go too far, but anyway, I love fucking Dr. Strange. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that works, man. <laughs> I just wanted to give you a chance to let it rip. Thanks, dude. Big time feel that this movie has a lot of truth to it. And in fact, of all the movies that we've covered so so far, this is my favorite one. I actually like this movie pretty much all the way. There doesn't feel like a whole lot of 
ill-intended symbolism in it for one that's kind of wholesome for <laughs> for a hollywood movie in some ways there are themes of that i think are going to be important as we go through time time is a huge theme the fractality of life and nature that's a huge theme really like that i guess one of the things about it that is a downside and this comes with anything disney star wars comic booky is that magic is portrayed as a weapon even for the hands of the good guys, you know, shooting lightning bolts out of your hands, Sith Lord style, that type of thing. And really, that's not the way that magic works. And this is the Hollywood magic. This is the fantasy sword and sorcery magic. But that being said, the theme in this film of a character who begins as hyper materialistic, learning to suppress his ego, not suppress, but master and put his ego into balance because his ego is still important to what allows him to save the world and rise to the occasion and all that. Mm -hmm. I think those are really important themes. Um, natural law is a theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and dude. as we go, this is probably Gabriel's primary wheelhouse here, but long ago, Gabe pointed out to me that many of the Marvel characters, especially how they're portrayed on the movies really seem to link up to and symbolize historical characters at least the narrative we've been given about the historical character. And so another theme, if you didn't catch it from the title, <laughs> was going for a Jekyll and Hyde thing, strange and Crowley, yes. big time. So we'll continue into the, uh, the synopsis, I guess. I mean, might as well get started there. Unless you guys have anything you want to say about the thematic overview, because that's good to pe pepper into the uh, the introduction here so that as we go forward, people can be noticing those themes, even when we don't particularly point them out. I think there's a there's kind of a when I was watching it again today, I didn't make it all the way through again today, but. Um, there's there seems to be there's a cutoff like where he. With the. Um, in the story where he's going to the, the uh, going to learn it's, it's through his transformational stage. And um, all the lessons, I feel like all the lessons in this are in the first half of the movie. And then everything else is kind of adventure, but with all sorts of other like cosmic things that we are supposed to, should be paying attention to um, later on. But in the first half, I feel like this is the part that people should be paying attention to because all the lessons are up to the point where uh, when he meets the ancient one and he's learning. Um, I guess we will get into it, but uh, I think it's in the first act that first act, first and second act, I think, are where all the lessons are. And I'm probably going to be sticking on that a lot more. But uh, I think you and I, you guys, I mean, so we talk during the week all week anyway <laughs> about this this kind of stuff. The weave uh, never ends. The weave never ends, right. It's, it's a constant thing. And uh, we've all found like you're talking about the correlations between between real life characters and these guys. I'm telling you, these are all real stories. All the <laughs> myths, all the all the all of the uh, Greek 
myths, all of the uh, all of our comic book pantheon. These are, you know, dramatized versions of real things. Our gods wore spandex, like the Chris Knowles book. Exactly. They've, they've been embellished, but uh, we found out there's a, there is a story of the battle on Blythe Street. You guys know this story? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll okay. get into that. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll hold I'm, that. There'll be, whenever okay, that feels like that. a good point in the plot to bring it forward, let's do that. Because I think that it probably pertains to the fight in the New York Sanctum. Perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah. most notably, because there's a falling down the stairs moment. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another thing, okay, I also would like to point out that what you said is accurate, that a lot of the value is in the first two acts where he's going through his lessons. And uh, probably the majority of our analysis will be that too, because the third act is just like any Marvel movie, big, splashy, you know, CG graphics, fight scenes, and the journey has pretty much completed at that point, And the final act is a short amount of time expanded out into a, a long, dramatic, exciting thing, you know, with the big CG final boss monster type deal. Uh, another thing that I noticed when I was going through and collecting screenshots today after I watched it last night, I didn't really notice this when I was watching the movie. But as I scrolled through for screenshots, I went, oh, yet again, the sky clock is encoded. In the first two acts, actually, there's a very clear, very clear journey from Aries to Pisces and back to Aries. And we have like a lot of visual evidence for that and can depict that. And the last thing I'll say before we jump into the synopsis aspect, synopsis analysis, is that one of the most interesting things about this film in particular is all the subtle, major occult truths that are peppered, or if not truths, then theories or perspectives that are common to the deep occult that have been peppered into this movie as like just little flavorful details in the background or one liners that are not even noticeable to the average moviegoer. But then you could just take that one sentence or the title of one of the books that he reads or something like that. And bam, that's a huge subject in of itself. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like a wink, wink, nod, nod. (laughs) We're telling you the truth about the realm, but you're not going to notice it because you're just a monkey in a theater watching a silver screen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Much like uh, Nick Fury in uh, Captain Marvel. There's this one scene where he, uh, they pick a lock to to escape and he says, you should see what I can do with a paperclip. And it just seems like oh, yeah. this silly quip. But in fact, you know, he's pretty much saying, Alan Dulles, y'all. <laughs> Alan Dulles Project Paperclip yeah that's a really good one was that in Captain Marvel mm-hmm. yeah yep. that movie not as fun as this one but there's definitely some some gems in there in terms of like little truth drops but okay you want to start in on the synopsis and the screen shares of imagery I think that sounds good I love your new name Gordy <laughs> Gordon 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 that's Gordon. my that's my luchador name I love it when I don the mask and I become Gorgon Memol and Luchador. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Let's dive in. Uh, all right, so this screenshot turned out to be really hard to make out. My bad. Didn't look, this is hard to see, but there's a bell here. This is the very first thing you see in the film is bells. And bells are a constant theme 
and it correlates to the idea of time because bells mark time, right? They ring on the hour, stuff like that. But the bell also correlates to Baal. And this is like the ultimate time lord. Baal being a, a cult name and, and encoding of Kronos. Yes. That which we, well not we, but like humanity, metaphorically feeds its children to, you know, sacrificing potential, our future potential and our youth in the moment for some kind of a power. And that is a major theme in any film that has to do with sorcery that's like, you know, uh, not black magic, but lack magic. <laughs> because why would you practice that idea of sacrificing your youth or your children or the future for any other reason other than you're in lack? So this screenshot, can't really see it. Sorry about that. We'll jump past it. Doesn't bear a lot of necessity to analyze unless you guys have something to say about the bells and, and bail, which you might. Well, I did think that the bells were, you'd think that a place in the Far East would you had more gongs instead of bells. Because it's, oh, that's a good, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those interesting things that I, I'm starting to see little changes from tradition, and which is also um, where we might come back to the, maybe, I don't know if they're mispronunciations. I'm, I'm sure they're purposeful, but like Kansu and Kanshu, Uh are subtle changes, but I'm wondering why. Like a gong is the same thing as a bell. Like it's a, it's a, a, it's an alert, right? Mm -hmm. But a gong is used in tradition, like a big bell or like the, you know, the big Buddhist bells that are like um, rung with giant logs and stuff. Yeah. That's, that's different than the ringing of the bells, like that are, that are to call servants, you know? Like when I hear a little bell, it's like calling a servant or a slave or uh-huh. it's setting a class system. Yeah. Whereas where with a gong, it's like you feel it in your body. Everybody feels it in their body the same. In For- Buddhism too, though, the bell is about clearing the space. Right. So that you can, you get clear, you know, it's a tone that, is almost like a vibrational cleansing. Yeah, very useful for uh-huh. meditation. Ring a bell at the beginning, have a bell ring at the end, especially uh-huh. if there's like a meditation instructor. Yeah, I do a clap. Big clap. But what's really interesting about the initiation scene of this film uh-huh. that blew my mind. I was like, wow, this is really on the nose if you understand like Templarism <laughs> and the uh, secret societies of the the modern world and their origins. So here we go. The very first thing that happens in the movie is the bad guys, their little cult, you could call them like the, you know, the evil secret society. They're breaking into the library of the, the good guy order, the white brotherhood, if you will. And they execute the librarian when they're there to steal some secret books that have the ritual incantations that they want. And they execute, <laughs> They execute the guy, I'm laughing, not because this is great, it's horrific, but they execute the guy by decapitation. Right. They decapitate this guy, and his head falls into a vessel. So, again, that's kind of dark. Um, It's the exact same shape as the bell. 
And it yeah, makes a point batong there. when his head goes in. It, it, you can hear it go batong. Yeah. And but so why is this important? It is because very crucial and important to the Knights of Malta, the Templars, organizations such as these, is the the head. And I bet Gabriel can say something about this more, but I'll just, you know, kick it over to you. But we're talking about the head of John the Baptist. Right. And also in terms of the sky clock symbolism, this is initiating the film. It's an initiation ritual with a head. That's a big part of the initiation rituals of Templarism is the um, the head that they are said to quote unquote worship, whether or not that's accurate. It may be some other meaning, but the head is Aries in the body in medical astrology, what have you. So we're beginning in Aries with this decapitation ritual that initiates the story. Yep. And it's uh it's the bad guy secret society that are doing this thing with the head. So it's all, you know, the head is where the head and the decapitation is leading them to the secret knowledge and power. So it's very much in line with all the mythology and legends about Templarism. Yeah. You could almost uh, almost make a case that they're indicating that they're starting this seasonal expressions in Libra. Just a thought, because they do, they are in a library, cutting open the librarian, they're dr- drawing and quartering him. Well, think about it this way. The librarian is their opposition, in a way, mm-hmm. and Libra is oppositional to Aries. Right. There you go. 180 from each other. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting, too, that they used two axes. Like, that was an interesting choice. He had battle axes on his. Oh, yeah. That And they show, like, a scissor kind of action but it was mm-hmm. like hand hatchets or something they yep. didn't show them very well because it's in dark but but i thought that was an interesting choice yes and so uh this is definitely i see it as an homage to the uh the skull drinking cults mm-hmm. you know and uh you know what some people would consider uh, head hunters uh it's 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 practiced worldwide. You know, it's not isolated to any one continent. Uh, so it is a very uh, broad and occult practice. Uh, sadly enough, probably still alive today in ways people aren't very comfortable with considering. But it's uh, because he's a librarian. You know, the, the people who do this practice, they actually believe they're gaining the knowledge of that person by drinking their skull. So ritualizing a decapitation is a hail to those kind of cults, uh, which are probably doing just fine in certain circles. Um, oh, and you know, it relates to the bell ding having to do with like uh, trauma-based mind control. Because mm-hmm. we were initiated in the movie with the bell ding, then a head falls into the bell, and we're all a little triggered. By what is implied there? Yeah, bells okay, are so, commonly used as um, mimetic devices in in hypnosis, right? And mind control. So yeah, yeah it's a, that's a that's a big point that you've you brought up a couple times in our in our chats lately too. The the uh, hypnotic. Um, hypnotic aspects to all of these. Yeah. And you can't get a Disney movie without MK ultra Mm -hmm. encoding. 
nope, <laughs> there's a couple that are just so blatant that it's like, wow, <laughs> this is, don't you guys know that we're onto these symbols at this point? These are obvious symbols like the monarch butterfly that comes up in a little bit. Oh, okay. But to push us forward, because oh, yeah. we do have so far to go, the next screenshot I've got to share, what happens next is the bad guys are chased out of the building, <laughs> the building by the ancient one. Okay, so we're moving into Taurus right away. The Ancient One, T-A-O, will have a lot to say about her, and we can kind of hold off some of that for later. I mean, you guys don't have to hold off, but I will be bringing up more as we go, as the film progresses and more is revealed about The Ancient One. But that is T-A-O, Tau. We're moving into Taurus, Tau, Taurus, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but here's, if if it's not, (laughs) there's so many reasons why I think that this is the point where the film's referencing Taurus and that she represents a Venusian archetype in many ways, more of a Luciferian Venusian archetype mm-hmm. or a terrible mother, but we'll get into that as we go. So here's the screenshot. The ancient one fights them and she uses magical or mystical fans. The fan symbolism is crucial to this. And I'm going to read from page 79 of spirit world July's end with black swans by Dylan Sicosio, because this just, Perfectly encapsulates what what is important about the fan symbolism in this reference. Okay, so also it relates to the basket. <laughs> this correlates to the basket. So I'm going to start from him referencing the basket. There's more about the braided basket that represents a master or a lord or the head before this. But he says, the basket woven from willow was a sacred fan, a symbol of purification that cleansed the soul. Because fans cleansed grain. It connects all the words that are related to purging powerful individuals from their sins or impurities. Okay, so she's purging them using these fans because they are impure or sinful. They're stealing from her and they have bad intentions. This symbolism of the fan is the origin of the Mystica Vanus Iacai. Mystical Vanus Iacai. The mystic fan of Bacchus. Is Va- Vanus or Vanus connected to Venus? His Latin for fan is Vanus. Vanus. Venus is the ruler of Taurus. So, <laughs> what do you guys think about this uh, this observation? Um, you want to go, Gabe? You go first. Um, yeah, I got a lot to say about that, and. Uh, Again, I will address the the ancient one a little more, but uh, yeah, I did think it was an interesting choice that they used a fan as a weapon. Um, I've always thought that was an interesting thing, but yeah, the the purifying part is really interesting because if you understand how you know ancient wheat is harvested, it, it's beaten. And then fan the husks are fanned away. Yeah, it's called a tribulation. Right. Yeah, tribulation. Isn't that interesting? Separating the wheat from the chaff. Right. And we even, like people, I'm not sure that everybody knows that term, separating wheat from chaff, what that actually means. If anybody's actually even seen it or, or done that kind of thing. I've done, um, I've done it with popcorn before. Yeah. Yeah, you do it with corn. We've done it. I've done it with corn too. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, interesting. But um, the basket and weaving a basket 
is also interesting too. Those all always come up in every tradition. I mean, because it's it's one of the first things we make as Stone Age people. They figure clay and basket weaving. Like that's why we we use that as like slang for like the most basic college term is underwater basket weaving. Right. This is the thing that that we do is like the dumbest course we could possibly do, which would probably be pretty bitching. <laughs> if we could take a course on underwater basket weaving, like how cool would that be? But um but that's it it's one of our most ancient artifacts that we find from any civilization is our baskets. You know you know what I'm gonna say? Placenta. <laughs> yeah, but also castration reference. Oh yeah. Right. And let me true. let me get you know what? I feel like I should just read the rest of this, the the previous part of this paragraph from Dylan's book because I feel like just reading it will be more clear than me paraphrasing it. Dylan does such a good job. The braided basket represents a master or lord woven from multicolored reeds. Keep in mind the symbolism of reed and the word it comes from being to consent or be willing. Now I'm going to add a caveat here. The reed, a hollowed reed, was used by the royal eunuchs, the eunuchs of the pharaoh as their substitute phallus so that they could urinate. <laughs> so the reed, the basket woven from reeds having to do with the head to continue on. He says, must a queen who this is, this character attain consent to be a master. Must the subject be her willing slave? Cause remember reed etymologically connects to consent, consent or to be willing. Is this connected to the Masonic checkerboard? And then there's an image in this book of, the basket that has a checkerboard pattern through its relationship with Hebrew. The word read also means coal in Hebrew. And that means to be perfect or complete whenever it's expanded to Kalal. And it's also connected to an Aramaic word that means to crown, <laughs> which I can't pronounce the Aramaic that's written here, but it's phonetically similar to Kelub, which is a basket woven from reeds in Hebrew. Or a cage can also mean a cage, which is similar to the Hebrew word for dog, Caleb. So anyway, what's going on here is the symbolism of the fan connects to the basket. And the basket was right before the scene where the head falls in. Right. Yeah. And the head, you know, the head, there's, there's two heads on the male body. And the head was cut off. <laughs> That's all. And we're at the initiation of the movie. It's totally a birth, a birth ritual. Yeah, and the initiation ritual of castration is a major facet of the terrible goddess cults of the past that was then continued on into things like Templarism and, and probably uh, modern secret societies. Oh yeah. So there's a there's a huge connection here. I mean, like this could be its own study on its on itself. Uh, well, I don't want to get too far away to just point out that uh, a, there was a, an initiate who was put down the river in a reed basket named Moshe. Right. Yep. The Moshe. Moses. Moshe Moses. means, <laughs> means initiate. Yep. And uh, which also Horus's a... phallus was in a basket, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Right. We're not Horus. Right. I'm sorry. Osiris. Osiris. Yep. Yeah, dude, this, this studying Egyptian stuff lately has been cool. But, um, 
and that uh, Superman was an allegory for uh, Moses and his name was Kal-El. I just want to throw that out there. Yep. Kal-El, which is to be perfect or complete right. in Hebrew. Yeah. Kal-Al is that, but Kal-El sounds a lot like Kal-Al. And anyone that studied the Superman origin in terms of the creators knows that it's very Hebrew symbolism replete, you know, created through and by that particular cult, if you will. So, okay. I feel like we can move forward. That was a big, <laughs> there's a lot to do in that slide. Uh, the next, next image I've got for us is she pulls them. She pulls the bad guys into the mirror dimension and Oh buddy, is there a lot to say about the mirror dimension and how that is probably going to be really relevant when we start talking about moon night, which is probably our next thing, moon night, but this mirror, this sort of shadow self, this other side, the alternate dimension, the multiverse, <laughs> very, very important theme throughout all of this. Yeah, this uh, this mirror dimension is still uh, quite a thing to ponder. It makes me think of the uh, Plato's form of the uh, realm of the forms. Uh, makes me think of a court of law where everything is, you know, in triplicate. Uh, I I don't know. What do you think, Gordy? Uh, The simulation? Oh, people going into the oculum, putting on the the metaverse? Also, it's dissociative identity disorder. That's particularly how it is portrayed in Moon Knight whenever he talks to his alternate, his alters. It's in the mirror. And uh, yeah, you know, he's split here. This is the, the master, if you will, she, this guy was her apprentice, right? She trained him. Mm-hmm. So he, she, he's her dog to go back to that word, Caleb, that right. we just referred to that's connected to etymologically to the basket woven from reeds and this Venusian Bacchus type archetype we're seeing here in the terms of the ancient one. Uh, so what in terms of MK Ultra, the the master causes the schism and splitting, this mirroring, this mirror world, and the creation of alters of in their uh, you know in their subjects and their mind control slave. Yeah, it it's never lost to me too that when they do this in Doctor Strange, it's a broken mirror. When oh right when you're like scrying is the idea that you use a reflective surface for divination. Mm-hmm. And they always use a broken mirror. Disney loves to do the broken mirror thing. Yeah. Um, which signals to me more chaos than, than order, than an actual connection with the, that other realm. Mm-hmm. It's like creating chaos to connect with it instead of being in natural law to connect with that that uh, reality. Whereas, so in this, it's it's like what? How did you describe it? Chance um, the dark or, or the chaotic? I don't. I I can't remember how you described the ancient one earlier, but. It's more of a. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll talk about the ancient one more as we go. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. And the, yeah, the druidic connections and all that. But this, okay. So the point about the mirror being broken is really relevant. That is the, this is sort of like the demonic realm that they're entering in a right. sense. It's the realm of fiction. What happens in the mirror world has no effect on reality in a sense. Right. So this is like also a straw man thing. This is the fictional self. This is the schism, the, the daimon, the divided man, daimon. That's what the, uh, this is part of the MK Ultra archetype is this broken mirror. I, I believe that all throughout like MK Ultra music videos of, of people that are mind control slave musical artists, that broken mirror symbolism is pretty common too. Yeah. I, uh, it also, it makes me think a lot about, uh, you know, uh, that's where uh, Peter Parker ends up beating Dr. Strange up the road, right? By using geometry to pin him down in the the mirror realm. Yeah. Some, uh, something came up when that, with that research, they were pointing out that Dr. Strange uses complex advanced math and that uh, Peter Parker used a more simple form of math where simplicity is like, like you were saying, natural law. It's like a... a Underappreciated uh, subjurisdiction, uh, mm. yeah. And as we go forward to something, I think you were alluding to, Gordy, is that the mirror world has a connection to the dark dimension. Yeah, right. And that's, that's very right. relevant. But it's, let's uh, jump forward in the plot. So the next thing that happens is we're shown, we're introduced to Doctor Stephen Strange, and very early in the movie, the very first thing we see him doing, washing, washing hands. of the hands. Lave los manos. <laughs> and right, what happens next? What? what oh, yeah. We're going to mask yeah, up. I, yep. I get that I, he's a doctor, and I get that that's like not surprising to see those two things. But we are talking about a cinematic universe in terms of Marvel that has been, that had been telegraphing coronavirus or cooties, I guess we should say on YouTube. It's been telegraphing cooties from as early as Captain America, if not sooner. And there's more evidence that there's something about the cooties pandemic seeded in this movie. So I can I guess I retract some of my earlier statements. That there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of predictive programming in this movie, but I, I should say relatively not a lot because it's still there. I mean, the first thing he's doing is putting on, putting on the mask and washing his hands and it's a close up. And actually the, the washing of hands, this is the only screenshot I have of it, but the washing of hands is something that I believe you are shown at least three times up close, if not more. Yeah, and he's a doctor. Of course, we know they wash their hands for surgery. I, I makes me wonder why they always have to like make doc surgeons. Like, I mean, of course, they think everybody's an idiot and they have to show people everything all the time. But yeah, a surgeon's gonna wash up and mask up. It's but they make a whole montage. About that, this is 2016, by the way. This is not yeah, like this is not 20, 2020. This is not 2019. This was, yeah. and those those mask scenes were purposeful. You could yeah. see them when you watch them again. It's it's a it's kind of a central thing in that scene. Yeah, they knew they were gonna. They knew that this was gonna be, uh, you know, Doctor saving the day. They were going to be pushing Doctor Saving the Day for uh-huh. decades to come. That is, uh, that's what it was with Doc Ock in the uh, the last one we did with the spider 
the multivirus of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. You know, Doc Ock comes and makes a noble stand. Oh, it's the doctor, the noble doctor. Uh, yeah. And you're right, a chance he ends up washing his hands later at a very crucial moment mm-hmm. in the story. Repetition. It's all about that repetition for the program. Oh, yeah. So then, okay, we, we come into the scene of him doing surgery and they're listening to classic rock and there's a bit of a he's got to show off his intellect and the someone else in the room thinks that the song that they're listening to is from 1978 and he very makes a very strong distinction. This is from 1977. 1977. Billy. <laughs> so uh, what is that famous book by uh, Alistair Crowley called again? Was it Lieber Oz? Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, Lieber Oz, or Book Seventy Seven, a single page by English author and occultist Crowley, purporting to declare mankind's basic and intrinsic rights according to Crowley's philosophy of Thelema from nineteen forty one, based on a much earlier OTO initiation lecture. The work consists of five succinct and concise paragraphs, being one of the last and shortest of Crowley's many libri or books. So, what's I think relevant about this book is that it's written in one syllable words entirely. <laughs> did you know that? I did not no. know that? Yeah. He wanted to make it as simple as possible for, you know, the dullard initiate to understand, I guess. Wow. So 77 pertains to a lot of things mystically, but 77 uh, as opposed to 777 is a transhumanist number or the number of the sorcerer. You know, you have Flight 77 on 9-11 as a perfect yeah. example. This movie is even from two, 2016. That's two, 16, two towers. 16 is the tower card in tarot. But in, anyway, 77 is as opposed to the perfected mind, body, spirit that, mm-hmm. that the perfected man would embody, 777. 77 is perfected mind and body with spirit component removed. So it's actually the end goal numerologically of transhumanism or the new age or the dawning of the age of Horus that Crowley talks about is about couldn't, you know, dropping one of those sevens, converting humanity into the seven, seven. That's interesting. You know, 77 was a big year too. It, uh, I don't know if slick you're, you're old enough to remember, but chance you're definitely not, but it I was, was a- 12 years out from being born. still. <laughs> Elvis died that year. Star Wars happened that year, changing all our kids' lives, um, creating a completely new mythology for all of us. Um, 70, what else happened in 77? So much. Um, but it was, it was a big time in just in all of culture. UFO flaps were everywhere. It was the first time I've ever I'd ever heard of one and seen one. Um, I was here in the desert when I was a kid, and that year I remember it because it was the year of Star Wars. And <laughs> you know, I was like, "Holy shit, these yeah. aliens are real!" You know, right? It was the same year, so I I mean, it was I think it was a it may have been an initiation to whatever is happening right now. That's interesting because it's got, you know, those two sevens, those are the uh, the two dippers going around that pole star, according to uh, a oh, lot yeah, of the two, 
Yeah, so man. Every time when, yeah. I walk, when I walk the desert at night and I I see those, I I don't ever not think of that now. Like seven between and you and Mario, all I see is seven and seven. Yeah, man. Yeah. And so uh, one thing, uh, just to remind everybody in uh, from some of my slick dissident stuff, we're pretty sure that uh, Dr. Strange is the Magi card, right? Card number one. I mean, it, it's incredibly obvious with his, you know, his red cape and the red sash that the Magi card has. But I always po- point out the tables, how there's like tables are also intrinsic to the scenery, uh, you know, because uh, right here where he's doing the surgery, he's got all of his utensils on a table in front of him. Later on with the apple and he does his hand trick, oh, right there. it's on the table there. So I just point that out that the iconography of the Magi card is going to be replete. Yeah, I was looking to see if I could find a screenshot of that, but we should just blaze forward. I'm down. Good call on 77 being the year of Star Wars because that's one of the most important pop culture, you know, worldview spells of all time. I don't know how either of you guys feel about it, but like I think it was massively important to get everyone believing in the globe in a solidified sense and less of a abstract conceptual mental way. Mm-hmm. You know, you're taught that in school and all that, that the earth is round and, and yada, yada. But when you see it, in the movies and you see them flying their spaceships from planet to planet, <laughs> nobody's everyone's suspending their disbelief. Nobody stops to think about all of the ridiculously silly things that would have to be possible or true for any of that to work. And also it removes spirit component. In my opinion, that entire idea of like space and aliens and other planets and that we're an infinitesimally small speck of dust in a in a meaningless empty void universe. This is crucial to the materialist paradigm. So crucial to the materialist paradigm. But okay, so we're gonna move forward. At this point in the film, when we're getting introduced to Strange, we have also entered into Gemini. I say that we've entered into Gemini because he's uh you know, well, the big part of this has to do with him. He's talking a lot of shit. <laughs> you know, he's like really boastful. His reputation is all that matters to him. The intellect is being emphasized. All very Gemini qualities, if you will. And he's a doctor ruled by Mercury, Caduceus, you know, the medical institution, all super mercurial. So I think pretty easy bow to draw. And I use that pun intentionally. You'll see why. Uh, to call him Gemini or to call this, this part of the scene, you know, the sun in Gemini. And there's a part where he takes on a case from another surgeon who's too dumb to know that his patient could be saved. And the patient seems to have been brain dead, but really he was just affected by uh, toxic metals leaching into his brain or into his cerebral st- spinal fluid due to a bullet in his head. And, but the bullet hadn't shattered or broken. So Strange was like, oh, I can go freehand that and pull it out you know, with tweezers or a, a metal or a, he used a magnetic brain pick. <laughs> so here's the screenshot from it. He's, he's in deep focus, deep concentration. He's pulling this bullet out, but the, the uh, toxic arrow, I mean, it's a bullet, but that's still symbol in the same symbolic ballpark as the arrow. Uh, toxo means bow in Greek. We're, we're still in an initiatory phase of the film in a way. Yeah. I'm thinking toxoplasmosis. 
Yeah, man. Good call. And he's riding in like a white horse, a hero to the rescue for sure. Yeah, I like it. And he's, uh, yeah, pull, pulling out the, and, and he even makes a comment about uh, what were you already signing him up for uh, organ donation? Oh, yeah. It was implied that the other doctor was just calling him dead, even though it wasn't, it was too soon to call because he could be harvested for organs. Yeah. Dude, that's dark. Crucial took- little wink and a nudge that that is a massive, massive problem with the medical institution is that people are let die because, yes. you know, it's even said that like this guy was kind of probably worthless. You know, he got into a gunfight or something. He is some kind of lower class, trashy person. So why even bother to try to save him? And Strange only even wanted to save him to show off and rub the other guy's nose in it that he could save him. Right. But they like, oh, might as well just harvest his organs. He's a trash human. Yeah. And you bet that that happens in hospitals that people don't necessarily get saved if they've got that organ donation box checked on their straw man identity card. Yes. Yes. And let me point out, this is the second time that they might have been referencing the consuming of organs, you know, chopping off the head in the beginning. And now we're talking about organ, organ harvesting. There's some consistency going on. I'm just pointing that out. Interesting. Consistency is the ring of truth, as they say. (laughs) All right. Next screenshot. We are going to see strange's home and his extravagant wealth. And he pulls open a drawer before he's going to some event and he's got all these extremely expensive fancy watches and the drawer is even like hyper technological. The watches are lit up from the bottom and spinning in here. Like who the hell has a drawer like that for, you know, a hundred thousand dollar watches. So this is coming back to the idea that this is connecting the ideas that time is money. That is a relevant theme in this film. And we'll talk more about that as we go, but just wanted to point that out so that we can get into that as we go. You know, (laughs) something, a big fascination of me lately, alchemics, the alchemy of economics, the, you know, the transmutation of our, our youth and our potential into hypothetical wealth that then gets transferred into as real wealth to the, uh, elites, the Uh elites. You know, one thing I'll point out is, uh, again, uh, this hails back to the Magi card in his table, which is adorned with all the goodies he could possibly want. He's got pentacles, he's got swords, he's got a golden cup, uh, and he's pulling these this abundance out of his little uh, drawer there. Yeah, the, the watches correlate to the bell symbolism too, because you could have a timer on your watch and it could beep beep at you. Nice, nice. Another Kronos nod too. And in that surgery, during the surgery, when he's taking the thing out of his brain, he makes a, makes a point to the other doctor yeah. to cover his watch because Ooh, it's ticking, yeah. because he can't concentrate. I mean, he's Dr. Strange. He can fucking concentrate. He's doing it as a dig at the guy uh-huh. to shut up because he's, he's a reminder the ticking is a reminder. And he says, cover your watch, Dr. West. And 
and then he realizes, oh, it's it's annoying. Hmm. So west is a, a reference to the to death, to the sun going down. Uh, could be a insurance jab, like mm. uh, you know, get the insurance off my back so I could just do my damn job. You know, maybe that's kind of oh, interesting part of what's being encoded there. Just a thought. Good call. Okay, so where we go next in the film is a scene of him driving his fancy sports car really recklessly. Uh, what follows from <laughs> what follows after Gemini? Cancer. What is Cancer's tarot major arcana card? The chariot. So he's driving his fast race car. We're going into Cancer. And yes. what follows? He's driving cancer? a Lamborghini, right? Isn't the Lamborghini I don't know, cars, a but It's something fancy. It's a bull, right? Sure. Maybe. Mm. <laughs> I didn't get a sorry. screenshot of the car in particular. I'm sorry. I'm just. No, I mean, there may be, that could be relevant too. I mean, we know those expensive car manufacturers have all kinds of occult symbolism in their logos and in the, mm -hmm. the families that own them. <laughs> I'm thinking right. Alfa Romeo, baby. Maserati. So he's driving recklessly. Uh, cancer is the point where the sun is actually at the height of its strength. So the very next thing that happens after cancer is the sun begins to decline, begins to wane. And what happens while he's in the sign of cancer, driving his car, his chariot? He gets into a horrific car wreck. And this is another kind of dark screenshot. Um, sorry, I guess. I don't know why they turned out like that, but they did. Oh, good. He was but farting. his hands get destroyed in this car wreck. Yeah. He was talking to Billy on the phone, making wheeling and dealing with Billy as to what, what jobs he would take and wouldn't take. And he got in a car accident, but I think that's interesting because he's, we got the going off the cliff and he's talking to Billy, which is a goat reference. Oh yeah. And going off the cliff is declined fall. Sun yeah. begins its fall. Yeah. And he's like really upset. He still has all this pride and wrath and he's extremely annoyed at the fact that like they couldn't save his hands. It's because they couldn't find where he wrecked for a long time. So the nerve damage set in is what is explained about that. Right. And here it is again with the hands, kind of a running theme, like. Yeah. And yeah. What's being said, I think, with the hand theme in particular right here, look at the state of his hands. Right. They are all punctured and destroyed. They're full of holes. I think the hand in the biofield, for example, in, in the biofield tuning work that I do in that whole theory. And also in all kinds of other versions of holistic medicine, the, you know, think about palm reading. And in fact, just to make a quick tangent, the, uh, the doctor who is like his sort of girlfriend, her name is Dr. Palmer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, Palmer. Nice. Right. So the hands are a fractal microcosm of the whole body. And your entire energy field is actually present and represented in miniature within the, the chakras of your palms and your hand. Right. They even show it in his hallucination in the, his hands. Yeah, I have a, a good hands. screenshot like, of that. It's cool. And yeah. what's different about his hands there is symbolic of, of what's different about him at that point. So at this point, his hands being shattered represents his self being in, in pieces. He's a divided man. 
Mm-hmm. You know, his ego is not integrated healthily. His shadow is not integrated healthy, healthily. So this so showing of the hands like this is symbolic of where he's at spiritually and in his health and all sort of levels. So I think the big, the big theme about the hands is the fractality of nature and that the hands are symbolic of the self in a way. There's a reason why they're healing hands is a thing. You know, people use that as healing hands. You see that in lots of different kind of new age or Ricky kind of things like healing hands, um, massage or whatever. That's true because the energy flows through you. You can manipulate it through your hands. The energy flows through that, through your hands. And then, and it's, they show in here that it's a psychological thing. Um, when they show the, the master, um, Hamir doesn't have a hand, but he has his magic. Yeah. The magic isn't actually in the hands. The, the magic is in here. Yeah. It's a fractal of this. But like you were saying, this is a microcosm of this, of the whole. Yeah, man. So, yeah. Yeah, nice work. Thank you. Okay, so the next sign, this maybe is the the next screenshot, maybe the least, well, I don't know. I think that it, it works in terms of the sky clock symbolism, but maybe the least obvious is he's trying to heal and coalesce and get his shit together, but his pride is making him wrathful and nobody will help him. He's acting like he's the king of the world still, but he's not got any support from his previous path of life. Like, you know, no doctors will fix him. Nobody will touch him. They're worried about their reputation. If they fail to fix his hands, mm-hmm. you know, if they do experimental procedures and it doesn't work. So this screenshot is him like throwing his paperwork and his, his laptop or his, his tablet, whatever off of the table. This is Leo. Yeah. You know, he's the, he's in his pride of Leo, if you will. Big freaking cry babies. <laughs> <laughs> very dramatic there leo yeah (laughs) and again this is the sun in its decline phase too i mean it's still high in the sky but it is heading down in leo yeah so let's see what the next screenshot is okay and then i think that next we're being shown virgo because she shows up and she's his only help and she's like innocent and she's really got the answers he needs but he's you know, Virgo is like that practical answers of maybe this is a new beginning. Something different is what you need rather than trying to push forward on this path where there's a wall. So I, I totally see her as representing the, the Virgo archetype at this point coming into the film. Um, yeah. What is her first name? Let me look that up. She, she even uh, embodies a uh, abstinence in an interesting way. In that, you know, she comes trying to help, but she ends up like hitting a wall with his anger and she turns on her heel and she ends up leaving. So she's, oh, that end, they're not really together in the sense of like sexually. Right. So the Virgo virgin archetype is maintained there, too. Yeah. And she leaves. She throws the keys on her way out. So she leaves with no obligations whatsoever. Very Virgo. 
Let's see. What was her name? What was her first name? I feel like that mattered. Oh, well, I think we'll, we'll probably see that later. I might have a screenshot that shows what her name was. Um, I won't pull it up, but I was curious because her first name. Oh, oh, yes, of course. Her name's Christine or Christina. Okay. Christ. Okay. <laughs> Christ Palmer. Yeah, there we go. That was her name. I just felt that was important. Now, to go back to that weave about the connection symbolically to Crowley. I mean, maybe we should make the caveat that we're not saying like everything about Dr. Strange is a one-to-one to Crowley. We're just saying that there's a lot of things that remind us of Crowley, referential to Crowley. Mm-hmm. And one of those things, back to the reputation idea, was reputation was a huge factor with Alistair Crowley, the great beast, if you will. You either loved him or you hate him. And people are still like that now. Very polarizing figure, but either way, his re- reputation precedes him. Almost everybody's heard the name and almost everyone's got an opinion whether or not they've actually done any looking into his life and whether or not looking into his life is bearing any actual reality in terms of truth. Who knows? Maybe a lot of what we know about him is hearsay. But I just wanted to make that point that the reputation aspect that is so relevant to Strange as a character, his reputation's everything to him. That is a big deal to the life story of Crowley as well. Very good point. Yeah, another aspect uh, is, and maybe we're about to get to that, uh, has to do with the Himalaya Mountains. Mm. And uh, the moment in his initiation. Yeah, we get a screenshot for that when we get there. Okay. I'll you want to hold it? I'll hold it. Yeah, just so we're in order. Yep. <laughs> not yep. to like. Keep it, keep it chronological. Yeah, not to squash your. <laughs> not to squash squash your <laughs> Okay, so next scene is him. Well, we'll skip forward a little bit, but he decides he needs to go to the east. Do you want to say anything about the the guy that he he finds out about that leads him to decide to go maybe take a a different direction in terms of where he's looking for help, Gordy? Oh, yeah. You know, um, that was really interesting because he... So as a doctor, he's trying to find avenues of, of alternative, alternative methods. And he finds out that this dude has um, healed himself from multiple back fractures. And so he talks to his therapist, his physical therapist. Is this where we are in the movie or am I going too far? Okay. So he's, he's, he's talking to his physical therapist with the, the little uh, tension things, trying to strengthen his, his hands. And he he asks him if anybody's ever done anything. He's like, yeah, I've seen a guy walk with a smashed. Uh, he shouldn't have ever walked. And then he goes and confronts this dude, finds him and confronts him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you rejected me when I wanted your help. So no, I'm not going to help you. And, oh yeah. Back uh, to that Leo and that reputation thing. The guy who had this injury, strange didn't even remember him. He had to be told about him by his physical therapist who'd happened to work with the same guy. But this dude had come to Dr. Strange, like the world's best surgeon, to try to get help to repair his injury. And Strange wouldn't take the surgery on because he didn't want to fail, to risk failure. He was afraid of failure, how that would impact his reputation. Right. Which So it led him, that led him to um, finding out what Comertage was. Yeah, and that's another major theme in the film that's kind of an overt one is that the ego drives when we fear failure too much. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, which in that case, the ego can get you somewhere, but then it's if you stay there, it's going to be your downfall, right? Right. Because then you can't go over that that path, which we'll get to um, how to get through that. They show you how to get through that ego. Uh-huh. He says he says something like, uh, "It's going to cost you." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Oh, I got money." He's like, "I'm not talking about money." Good luck, pal. And walks away. Yeah, and then there's a there's a uh, a montage of him running <laughs> losing all his money, right, like trying to running out of all his options. And yeah, yeah. all of his watches course. are gone. Right, time is money. Gone. And he says, when he gets there, I I spent my last dollar, and you want me to have tea or something? I can't remember what it, what exactly it was, but it's great. Uh-huh. It shows how when you are completely deplete of all options, you'll find one. This, the universe will conspire with you to find that option. Yeah, sometimes you open. hit rock bottom because you're actually about to bust through the bottom and come out the top because, you know, as above, so below, bottom is the top type of fractality. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Okay, so next he goes in search of this what was the name of the place? Comitage. Comitage, yeah. Didn't get into breaking down that name. Probably something to it. But it's supposed to be in Nepal. And he goes to Kathmandu. <laughs> Kathmandu, toxoplasmosis. Anyway, he's looking around. This is him entering Libra. He's trying to find balance, you know. He's hit rock bottom. He's trying to pull himself back up to some semblance of balance. Uh, here he is touching these bells. <laughs> Just thought, here we go, more bell symbolism. Good call. Yeah. So I think that's Libra, though, is him trying to find balance at this point in the film, for uh-huh. sure. You know, Kamataj in reverse phonetically is uh, Gatamak, which has gate, G-A-T, Gatamak in reverse. Which, and Gato, gate, cat. Katmandu. Katmandu. More cats symbology. Hmm. Little sneaky cats, though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in his quest for balance through the sign of Libra, let me check my... I have notes in two places. Before you go on, I want to point out that those are the spinning bells. The spinning bells have uh, prayers on them. And the way that the reason they spin them is that it like everything is spinning. Like it's the same idea of, of dervishes. Like mm-hmm. when you're spinning, it spins out your vibration out to the rest of the universe. Yeah. And, um, interesting too, that he's kind of mindlessly spinning them. He's totally oblivious to the deeper meaning of this physical material object. He's tr- totally trapped in materialism still. And to but go with the Libra idea anyway. right here, the Crowleyan version of the Libra card justice is actually adjustment. And he's definitely in need of an attitude adjustment, mm-hmm. a perspective adjustment. Yeah, this is where it gets good right here. Yeah, it is. Uh, but next, what happens to him before he finds Karmataj, he gets mugged by a gang of ruffians. Mm-hmm. Would this be Scorpio happening? Oh, nice. Yeah, it's getting that betrayal. 
Yeah, the last he's having the last bit of anything that he owns taken from him. Basically, you know, they want his watch. It's the only thing he has left. Uh huh. The dead end in the alley there. That's interesting. Taking away oh, his nice time one, too. Josh. Three ruffians. Hiram Abiff. Oh, nice. Totally missed that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a three ruffians right there. Good call. So in that scene, so he's getting beat up and Mordo comes in and saves him. Mordo's been, they show Mordo following him because mm-hmm. they know, because he, he's asking around the town about Comertage. And so word is out, the, some white dude is, is asking about the temple, right? Uh-huh. So he's, so he's finding him to find out what, what's going on with him and then comes and saves his ass and brings him to the door. And there's a great speech. Did you want to, did you have anything else chance before I, I just had this screenshot of his broken watch where he's like, you know, fully, he's fully fallen at this point. And he's out of time. Yeah. Right. But that's part of what allows him to find spirit is that he's out of time. He's out of the rat race. He's no longer ruled by Kronos or the clock, mm-hmm. which is part of what kept him in the material. Oh, guess what, guys? It's Groundhog's Day on his clock. And it's a Wednesday. It's Groundhog's Day. I remember hearing about that. Really? February 2nd. That's a really good call because we didn't exactly say this, but a huge aspect of this film symbolically is the idea of the loop time loops. Yes. Which which is what a watch represents. Yeah. And strange thing about uh, if you look into uh, Groundhog's Day, Puxatawney Phil is like 140 some years old. They, They assert that it's been the same groundhog for 140 years. And that it's never died. So it's the groundhog is kind of a zombie too, in a weird way. There's something <laughs> really, really weird about the fact that they never <laughs> report replacing Puxatawney Phil. He seems to be immortal. That's interesting. You know, I I remember thinking last time I watched uh, Groundhog Day that him being brought out from his his thing is kind of a Christ thing. Yeah. About opening of the tomb kind of feel that's hilarious. So um, when he, he is brought to the door. So Mordo is bringing him to Kamertaj temple and he, Mm. he's walking towards, uh, they walk past these guys that are praying on the street and he goes, and Mordo shows him this plain blue door that's just in a brick wall, right? Right. And he's like, are you sure it, this looks a little more Kamertaji? Because <laughs> they show two guru dudes, you know, meditating like, with all the incense and, and all the stuff. Uh-huh. And he goes, and then they start an actual discussion. He's like, you know, you really need to unlearn everything you learn. And what he says is... Forget, Forget everything you everything think you know. You think you know. Yeah. Yeah. That has been my mantra for the last five years, dude. Good like, forget everything that you think you know and start over. 
It's like, yeah, the most powerful words, according to Mark Passio, the most powerful words a human being could say, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Nice. Absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Because in there is freedom because you're not, you're not, your reins aren't tight. You can, you can look at other things and go, Hey, wow. I was wrong about that. What else is, is, uh, new or true. What else is true? What else can I find that the illusion has been holding me back from finding out what the real real is Yeah, about finding out what myself is more fractal layers of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that cool. Yeah. I thought that was the, that's the best line of the whole movie. Forget what you think, you know, Okay, so here we go. He gets brought into Comertage by Mordo, and he meets the Ancient One. He immediately assumes incorrectly that the the man in the fancy robes who's sitting down at a table was the Ancient One. And she walks up and hands him some tea, and he's like, oh, thank you for allowing me in, Ancient One. And she's like, you're welcome. And he's like, oh, it's you. So there's a perfect example of what you think you know needs to be forgotten. But this is Sagittarius. He's entered into Sagittarius. Nice. She is mixing up the tea, temperance, the Sagittarius card. She is the teacher, the guru, the Jupiter, the wise one. And she's very direct and Sagittarian about how she blows his mind (laughs) and what comes next. (laughs) But also the fact that she's mixing up tea, you know, she's the ancient one, Tao, T-A-O. Tau, T starts with the T, the Tau. The he's, he's come to the end of a particular journey in his life. He's closing the book on the first story of his life, which was materialism, being a doctor. You know, he's reached the end of the Hebrew alphabet, the Tau. He's at the, uh, the Omega point, if you will, about to begin again. Nice. This is the Sagittarian guru teacher. Yes. This is another scene where they talk about the keyhole again. Um, you're talking about the, what he could do with a paperclip, Gabe, but she, yeah. her speech, she's talking to him about your whole life. You've been looking through a keyhole and I kept and trying to widen the scope is what she's, she's saying. Uh huh. But I kept, I kept thinking like how many times have we, we found ourselves in our lives, like figuring out, like trying to look through a keyhole or trying to figure out something that was so hard that we just couldn't understand. And yes. yet, but the door was open anyway. Yes. Like we just fucking <laughs> move. We could have just opened the fucking door and mm-hmm. read the book, but we were too afraid that it would do something to us. Right. That we were going to, that we would be afraid to read some spell book or or well, that's like that ego right ego is afraid because as soon as you actually do allow the truth to come in you know she says you've been trying to look through a keyhole and widen the keyhole but now that it is being offered to you you're refusing right and that's ego because it's actually terrified to change because basically that means that it's going to die in a sense it's going to have to be reborn and it right. wants to stay the same. Fear tries to keep everything the same. And fear also usually fears its own greatness, its own potential. 
I think part of what holds humanity back from recognizing the fractality of life and that we are all literally source incarnated into a, a vessel that is a fractal image of the all is that it feels like too much responsibility mm. to go there to realize that everything in the outer world is a reflection of our inner world and that we've been in an illusion that the outer world leads our inner world, that that life is happening to us, but we're happening to life. <laughs> we are nature. We are life. It goes both ways to be fair. But when we say that it goes both ways, it's really that it also goes neither way. It's both at the same time. You know, uh, a couple of things I want to riff on is you got to riff on the tea stuff. <laughs> yeah, man, there's so much going on. And so, so talking about, you know, looking through the keyhole for like a, a pinpoint singular thing, when in fact there are so many things being revealed uh, in the, in this exchange, in this just a couple minutes of the show, so much is being revealed. Um, but real quick to fill in on what we were saying with Sagittarian energies is he went through a, a labyrinth or a maze to get to Comitage. So there we have the, uh, the Sagittarian labyrinth that the uh, Minotaur is uh, the, the guardian of. Oh man, I can't wait to release the Emily Moyer episode I have in the book or in the, in the bank. Cause nice. we get into some serious labyrinth gravy. Yeah. Yeah. So that just something to point out is that we just solved, he's at the heart of the labyrinth and uh, the ancient one is at that center chamber. So. Uh, and he's saying things like, there's no such thing as spirit. She's showing him doc, di- diagrams of chakras oh, and, right. and meridians. And he's like, these are just gift shop pictures. There's no such thing as spirit. There's no such thing as life force or subtle energy. Right. She's trying to show him the keyhole. Right. The whole yeah. of his key, his chi, his yeah. life force energy. Mm-hmm. He's trying to show him spirit. Yeah. And he's refusing to see it. And he's spouting the, you know, the line of many doctors and neurosurgeons yeah. that are trying to say that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain. Right. And totally missing the mark. Yeah. Which She's is sin. <laughs> he's sinful. He's missing he's the sinful. mark. Yes. And she's literally putting those layers out. She's showing how the meanings are, you know, one on top of another on top of another. Uh, and she's giving him a chance to, you know, to make the correspondences. Yeah. Oh, you know what? This is a good one by Joshua. We're talking about the labyrinth and the minotaur. Theseus is also Theos Zeus, which is nice. basically God Jupiter, you know, which is Sagittarius. He's even a son. Thesis is a son of Jupiter. Uh-huh. So what did you want to say? I know that you had something and I don't want to leave yeah. it hanging yeah. at this point before we go forward about the symbolism that you noticed with the mixing of the tea in terms of uh, MK Ultra, because it's a good tangent. Yes. Uh, so this was brought to uh, the spider's attention uh, maybe a month or so ago. Uh, Mario Garza. Uh, pointed out that very um, important commercial that went on the air uh, right after JFK was broadcast uh, to the masses. There was this really uh, freaky commercial. It's an instant coffee commercial for Nescafe Instant Coffee. And when you watch it, there's a 
pendulum swinging in the background like a grandfather's clock. And it has this hypnotic. Let's watch it. It's really short. Yeah, please bring it up. Because because we're talking, it fits so many aspects of the symbolism with the time. And yeah, yeah, let's watch it. Let me make my screen share share sound. This is creepy, y'all. And so make sure that we can hear it. And they even do it with the spoon. They're showing you, we are doing this. Yes. And this changes the context of any public display of the coffee ritual from, from this point in history onward for eternity. Any time in culture where you see some mundane tippy tap, tap, tap on the glass is hailing to the fact that this mind control commercial was broadcast to everybody in the moment of trauma, at the teachable moment, they put this on the air. Right. After the, it's the bulletin after the bullet was in Kennedy's head. And the Nescafe logo has a rifle with a bullet coming out the barrel. All right. Let's watch this. It's only a minute. It takes more than an instant to make a real cup of coffee. That's why Nescafe has come up with a new kind of coffee. It's more than an instant. It's new minute brew Nescafe. Anybody can make a coffee more instant, but Nescafe makes it more coffee. A new kind of coffee. Minute brew. Minute brew Nescafe is a new discovery. A new way to hold in extra rich pleasure. So please help us. Let it brew in the cup a few seconds longer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Loosh, baby. Loosh it. Loosh it good. (laughs) (laughs) Buy this completely new kind of coffee today. New Minute Brew Nescafe. It's more than an instant. And look at that rifle. I never noticed the logo. (laughs) It's got a rifle on top. How wild. And now, the craziest part is I did an anagram with with that label, Nescafe Instant Coffee. And I freaked myself out, guys. I freaked myself (laughs) out. but there's an anagram that says uh, you get 15, which is the devil card, and then it, uh, Satan and feces. I'm not even kidding you. Uh, <laughs> I made a video on that, and I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on that too much. But there's an anagram, nasty. Yeah, there's so much more to that that your video anagram. covers off really well. I remember that one. Yeah, I don't like giving that one too much energy. It was like kind of a creepy experience where I'm like, okay, I'm done with anagrams for a week. But Gabriel, I feel like you have more (laughs) to say about her making him tea and the programming aspect of all this. Yes. Can you give us more? Because she's the guru. She's the Sagittarian. She's the Lord Jupiter. Yes. Uh, This is... hmm, uh, Very much, uh, like you were saying, reminds me of that temperance card. Um, she's a, she's about to have a conversation with him about programming, about DNA and programming people uh, to rewire the way they basically the way they render every moment of their own existence uh, second by second. Um, um, so yeah, it does make her the temperance card, and she's preparing that drink, that tincture. 
So on one level, it's telling us that, yes, the a superior form of healing art is alternative, alternative lifestyles. You know, people who drink, drink tea and make uh, healthy decisions. Um, it's also saying that if anything that can actually heal will be off the radar by nature of the system that we're given because of the trademark, cap, the regulatory capture that, that we're in, any truly healing modality, healing modality is illegal to say that it heals or cures anything. Right. So of course it has to be in Kathmandu uh, is where you're going to have to go if you want to find the real deal stuff. So it's kind of saying that, but I will also point out uh, in context of the, uh, the pandemic uh, breaking out, this seems to be a big reveal for the Marvel Cinematic Universe that, that we've come to love and appreciate as the MK Ultra uh, military industrial message. Um, her mixing this tea makes me think of that Nescafe commercial, the way she taps the, the cup a couple times. And then she goes and she hands it to, uh, his name's Mordo, isn't it? Mordo. Mm -hmm. She gives Mordo his cup, and she's very pleasant about it. And just as he sips his cup, she she has this really big, uh, delightful smile that could almost be construed as like a duper's delight kind of smile. But the timing on it is uh, very pregnant with meaning. We'll just say that. You know, they could be just talking about the Wuhan laboratories. That could be all that they're revealing. But I think there's much more. We oh, could... they reveal the Wuhan laboratories by the end. I don't know yeah. if you caught that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, but they also, you know, I was thinking about uh, Starbucks personally. You know, the fact that she's mixing up this tea, everything is nice and pleasant. And she gives them a wink. Well intending. Yeah. When, when she gives the tea to Dr. Strange. Yeah. He goes, oh, this is great tea. And she goes, I know. Like something like she winks and yeah. smiles. It's like there's always that trickster thing. Like that's where the trickster like really came out. Like wink. Yeah. She literally winks. But then she shows him all the diagrams of subtle energy. He gets mad, yells at her about how stupid anything spiritual is. She gets mad and she punches him out of his body. <laughs> he's floating in his astral body having an out-of-body experience like what the hell and then he gets pulled back in and he says what's in that tea uh, now i also want to point out in the chat get him made some comments about ness and connecting it to irish mythology and the female illuminati you are right on the money we'll get to that <laughs> we're holding that back we that is coming <laughs> Big time. But yeah, this is the point where in the movie, we're being told the truth that you do have layers to your body, that there is an astral body. I've had out of body experiences. I've seen my body from the outside and floated about. So this I thought was this is one of the reasons why I like this movie is because they're they're telling you the truth here. This is not fantasy. I mean, maybe it's fantastical that someone could punch you in the chest and punch your energy body out of your physical body. But I don't know. Maybe that is doable too. Mm -hmm. Seems kind of black magic-y because it's a violation of will, but oh yeah, it is what he needed at this point to be shown the truth that he refused to entertain as a possibility. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'll point out that, the, uh, you know, he had his fall off the cliff that brought his material world, you know, to an end as he knew it. Now he's gone through the labyrinth to find the goal. He's finally there. Now he's got to fall all over again. This is uh, definitely kind of got that full card initiation feeling to it. Uh, and I've been, uh, I've had some crazy spells put on me in the past. I've had some crazy spells put on me. So I know, I know the spiritual realm is, uh, can be militarized. Let's, let's just put it that way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've had, I've had a guy literally hit me with psychic darts and hurt me from a distance before. Yep. It's a thing. It's a freaking thing. It sucks. It's a thing. Before we go, I think it's right after that that he comes back into his body, and they then they there's a exchange between Mordo and her, where he's like, "What the hell did you just do to me?" Um, right? I, am I getting that timing wrong? But he he turns to Mordo asking about what had happened to him with the out of body thing. And he tells Strange she made him what he is, right? And he says, I was looking to defeat my enemies, but you showed me the power to defeat my demons. Oh, she yeah, yeah. says to him, we don't defeat our demons. We learn to live above them. Which yeah, and then she true. sends him blasting off into the... Uh higher etheric realms right 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 that's when it happens right just before this that's what was really interesting where he needs to and in that is this where he starts to trip and see the she sends him on another journey this time it's a full off dmt blast off he gets shot up into the air and he is above the globe and when you are shown the earth from space as a globe, what does he see up there? Monarch butterfly. Oh, a monarch butterfly. Oh, we're being told the globe is, is MK Ultra programming? What? What is that? Why, why is there? There's only one thing up there and it's a monarch butterfly? What? Perfect. Too perfect. It's way too perfect. And he goes to try to grasp it and then he gets sent further. And this is, and, <laughs> speaking as someone who's done DMT, this is a lot like what DMT is like. You're going through this colorful tunnel tube of lights and it feels like you're, it literally feels like you're going up. So she gives him a death experience, actually. She mm-hmm. she gives him a simulated death. This is what occult initiations, mystery school initiations do use psychedelic psychedelics to do. You know, yeah. this is what the ergot medicine was prepared for. For the Eleusinian mysteries, there's more theatrics to it than that. But she, uh, you know, this is his, this is his moment where you have to die before you die in order to become enlightened in this life. It's a requirement. So this is him dying before he dies. He flies through the DMT tunnel. You guys want to say anything about this or should I just kind of go through the sequence until we get further, uh, get um, to the end of it? No, but it's a lot of light. It's a lot like this. I mean, if the experience of of near death is very much like this, the rainbow colors, um, rainbow bridge. Yeah, dude, it's pretty close. Nice. 
And yeah. here he reaches uh, like a hell underworld. Yeah. yeah. Here come he's being grasped by hands. Here, this is Cap. I think this is him hitting Capricorn. By the way, nice, nice. Uh, but Capricorn, he stays in Capricorn for a little bit. But I think this could be like entering, crossing over into Capricorn in a sense. Yeah, I have to look at my notes that I, I labeled the screenshots with something as notes. Yeah, Capricorn and Underworld, right? So sometimes I have to pull it down to look at that. He's being grabbed by these hands that are coming out of the walls, and then he looks at his own hand, and his fingers are growing hands out of the top and those hands at the top of his fingers are growing fingers that have hands on them and they're just growing like branches of a tree and he's experiencing the fractal of self and nature he's seeing himself for what he really is which is all life and all the cosmos he's literally seeing himself without a filter anymore and he's horrified by it (laughs) but it's also like exactly what he needs in order to break down his ego and become willing to learn something. And rather than thinking he knows it all. Yep. And it's all baby, baby appendages, uh, kind of having, uh, to do with that baby mind, the child mind. And we are talking Capricorn, the the time Lord sacrificing our youth. Yep. They are like baby arms that are grabbing at him. You know what? This is also funny to me is that. Oh shoot! Sorry. You know, I'll just. This is just a real quick thing. In my days going to music festivals and half the people around you are tripping on something, it was a really popular gag that people would do to wear a little plastic hand that uh-huh. caps on the top of your finger. <laughs> yeah. They like wave at you, and the top of their fingers had hands growing out of them, just like this. Yeah. And when you were tripping, you saw that, and you're like. You didn't know if that was real or, or not. <laughs> I'm like, this is, to me, that was like extra hilarious that this is something that happens here. Totally. And you know what else, guys? Placenta. Of Ooh. course, placenta, but what about it? It's the placenta. That's awesome. Wait, what about the placenta? His hand is like a placenta right now. It's the branches oh. of a placenta. Oh, the bra- Oh, interesting. Yeah, like the veins. Yeah. Look like a tree. Yeah, that's true, yeah. huh? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Now, was it just before she he goes on this trip or just after? She asks him, how did you get to be such a good doctor? What? How did you, how were you able to rebuild a spine? And he says, through study and practice. Oh, I think it's after this. Basically, he agrees that he wants to be taught, but he's like, um, after. Okay. We have a screenshot right. from that scene actually directly. Did I go too far? Well, we might, we might as well say something about it now if you want. Yeah. He wants um, to know how he can make magic sparks fly out of his hands the way she does. And she asks him that, you know, years of practice is the answer. Study, practice. Yeah, he gets zoomed back into his body too, which is really uh, kind of how it happens too. Um, that's how it was for me. Like you just kind of got slammed back into your one, you know, yourself. And when that happened to me, it was rainbows like that. It was just like that. Um, not just, but you know, when he show when they show the, uh, they zoom into kind of where they show the eye of Dormammu, which is the mm-hmm. evil 
He, they show him the evil in right here. The, oh yeah, she's telling him that there are dimensions. She's narrating his whole trip to him while he's on right. it, and she's telling him that there are dimensions that are filled with life, and then there are dimensions that are filled with hunger, and they just want to consume right. everything. Yeah. Right, setting up a Dormammu and Galactus. Nice. So the next thing that happens is. Well, maybe not the exact next thing, but he's like, he's kicked out because he was so arrogant. She gives him this mind blowing trip, but she's like, I just wanted you to see what you're missing out on, but I'm not actually going to let you in or teach you. And he starts to beg for it. He does the karate kid thing, or I don't know if it's karate kid, but you know, that classic Kung Fu movie trope of just sitting on the doorstep of the master's house, waiting for them to, to let him in. Yes. Right. Doorways and portals seem to be a, a real thing for Doctor Strange. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I see that, you know, he's like weaponizing doorways. We'll get to a part later on where he's using uh, doorways in a very tactical fashion. Yeah, door is an important symbolism here, actually. Yeah. We'll get back to that. That'll come up. So... After he's let back in at some point, I don't know exactly the sequence here. It's not that important, but this is Mordo, the, uh, you know, the right-hand man, sort of like her assassin in a way, her, her enforcer for the ancient one. And he says, I have it written down here, that they live within the natural law. Okay, that's like their creed. And that's his creed in particular. Very important to him. So he's Capricorn. I said we already kind of came into Capricorn when he hit the underworld and the baby hands and all that, but mm-hmm. we're in the Capricorn sign. He's talking about the law, right? He's talking about the order of things. And we continue on the, well, this I just this is not a super important one to decode, but he hands Strange, after they let him in, shows him to his room, hands Strange a slip of paper, and he's like, what is this? And Mordo says, it's the Wi-Fi password. We're not savages. To insinuate that (laughs) Wi-Fi, that's another door, deadly orgone radiation, D-O-R, Wi-Fi signals. But to imply that, like, you know, magic is all about combat abilities and and flashy colors and lights, but not anything to do with, you know, you wouldn't use psychic Wi-Fi. I don't know if that's really important here. I think maybe... You would have Wi-Fi if you're like this, so that you could like send emails to people who didn't have psychic abilities. But you catch my drift. It's kind of a funky, mm-hmm. funky also, point to make. Interesting that they chose the word Shambhala, and that's another. Karmataj is kind of like a Shambhala, right? Exactly. It's one of those kingdoms in the liminal space. Like, um, what was the last one in? In uh, it's, it's the kingdom in black. Panther, uh, Wakanda. It's mm-hmm. also the, I can't remember what it is in Shang-Chi, but all of these places, Shambhala, um, what's the other one that they always use in, in the, in the East. But at any rate, these are kingdoms. Agartha. Agartha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's another one. That's not the one I was thinking of. That's even better. <laughs> um, so yeah, but limit where we should be living in liminal space between the pillars, you know, we should be the eight between the ones. 
Did you say eight? Did you say eight? Oh. Oh, yeah. I have a couple of screenshots from this. She's showing, she's taking him on as a student now, and she's showing him how spells work and how magic works. In my opinion, this is still Capricorn because we got our cube and then the hypercube, which is the eight-pointed star. It's a reference to the Tesseract, the four-dimensional cube. And why that's important is because she's saying that the way that they use their powers is that they draw energy from alternate dimensions. Oh, really? Because <laughs> this is, to me, like the biggest problematic fallacy of the whole movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's you're not... Dr- <laughs> right, Gordy. Okay, yes. You want to thank you so on that much. before I take no, take off. No, on it. you you go. I want to know where you're going <laughs> because I can't. This bugged the fuck out of me, man. Thank you for addressing it. Go, please. Well, this this tesseract symbol is all over buildings of great power, like government buildings, capital buildings. This eight pointed star, this four dimensional cube, and for the four D cube. It contains a 3D and the 2D cubes in it, but it has reference to the idea of drawing power from an alternate dimension because it's, you know, the time dimension, the fourth dimension. They use time, Kronos, as like their main power source in terms of the alchemy of enslavement. You know, Kronos cutting off Mercury's feet, all that stuff we've talked about in other places. Now, the other thing about drawing power from other dimensions that is, to me, a fallacy is because it's propping up this idea of a multiverse that there is some sort of barrier between you and potential other expressions that you could do and that you're the one that you are here now and that there's an infinite multiverse of different versions of you that have all the powers and abilities that you don't currently have. It's this illusion of separation thing that is unnecessary and the true power that we could have in terms of anything magical is actually about getting into alignment with what's actually here and what's actually true and what's actually real now in the present moment in the, in the capital R reality or the existence. I like existence better than reality because reality has that real, that idea of the Royal, the King. Mm -hmm. So they're drawing power from alternate dimensions to do magic. This is like akin to the idea of, siphoning life force energy out of your slaves out of your underlings by creating an alternate dimension of them which is the straw man which is the artificial self the divided man the daimon the demonic the schism the split the mk ultra of it all let you guys go from here and she's she's literally i mean she's giving it up right there that she is pulling from the dark She's pulling from the demonic mm-hmm. because there's, there has to be some sort of, she's talking about them being a balance or something that uh, there should be, you can't take from one and, and expect something else to, to happen, which is true, but it's depending on what you're, where you're pulling from. If you're pulling from a finite source, that's true. But if you're pulling from an infinite force, an infinite force is just infinite. It's uh, if you're pulling a piece of something that's infinite, you're going to have infinite, right? If if you have a picture of a hologram, the biggest picture of that hologram is going to be the same picture. Yeah, right? infinity divided into two 
or infinity when it mito- does mitosis, it's still infinity on both sides. Right. So if we if you're in balance, you're pulling from infinity anyway. So there's whole this whole be really careful and be. What does infinity of, mean? It's non-defined, undefined, it's non-defined, right. infinite, undefined. And a definition is the is exactly what a noun is, which is what the artificial is. Is the straw man is the two-dimensional. Which is what why this magic doesn't work. This this kind of magic is limited, and that's what going back to Crowley. Why he always misses it? Why it always stops? Like that's where he got became the drug addict dickhead, and didn't finish his spells. Which I hate that word spells. Well, but she specifically talks anyway. about spells here too, which is mm-hmm. in a problematic way. Right. She's saying that it's basically like secret code words that activate these other dimensions of the universe and let you take their power. When the truth of magic in logos is all about. <laughs> Logos has nothing to do with knowing special magic abracadabra word that give you some kind of a control over things. Logos is all about aligning with what is and true magic has to do with the systems of correspondence because it's about aligning with your, your thoughts, intentions, your emotions with your behavior. Right. And knowing like the real code to the, the matrix would be in terms like language is crucial to it, but it's not about words of power per se that you like find and create the perfect words to give you control. It's about realizing that the word was already there and it's always been there and you just start to hear it and and feel it synesthetically. And that's what brings the power into you. The power was actually always there to begin with. It's about recognizing what was within the whole time and energy flowing where attention is directed you're bringing down the barriers of the illusion of separation. But here's an important point that Cody Clearman says, seems they aim for an illusion of singularity that discounts a being's unique position, which is demonic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Their singularity idea is crucial to like later in the film when the big bad gets brought in. Yeah. Um, so one aspect uh, I'll put forward here is the uh, the likelihood that, you know, what they're doing there in those rudimentary beginnings, you know, those are probably like lesser banishing rituals, you know, which would be essentially like cleansing exercises uh, to whatever degree. Um, and something that's kind of neat, uh, I remember listening to the um, – Occult rejects talk about making their banishing rituals and eventually having the ability to actually see, well, you know, what the shapes that they're creating with their hands just through creative visualization. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, that actually happens to some people that get into flow arts like, yeah, like poi and things. Yeah. I mean, spinning, fire spinning type of arts were actually. And uh, psychedelics help with this, but you begin to be able to perceive the planes of geometry that are the axes upon which your spin is going, is moving. Yeah. Kind of hard to describe, but I know what you mean. Interesting. What's it called? Poi? Poi is like where you have these balls that you're spinning on chains, but you could do it with a staff. You could do it with all kinds of different deals. Mm -hmm. Flow, Flow arts in general 
And I think it's a healthy way to experience this uh, sacred geometry of movement and flow that we can bring in with our own spin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can, you can feel that when you're, when, if you do a Qigong practice or any sort of movement practice, you can eventually feel your, your own geometry of your, of your energy field. Yeah. I think you can train yourself to do that. Oh yeah. Speaking of training, um, still kind of in the Capricorn feel of the sky clock. He's going into training now, discipline, learning the rules, learning, getting, you know, getting himself into order. And we didn't really mention it, but all this quest is to heal his hands. We didn't really say that very clearly. Oh He's yeah. still questing to heal his hands, which is the, his self, you know, it's the fractal of his whole self. Yeah. He what up, up alpha warrior. Good to see you in the chat, man. Yeah, I figure you would know what we're talking about <laughs> with this whole like poi geometry flow question. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this is the study and practice. I mean, they call it manos in Spanish, right? It's man. <laughs> it's, the, it's, your, it's your monad, your hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The it's kingdom so of heaven is at hand. We, we could go on about the practical <laughs> nature of the hand, the number 27 and the phalanges and the joints of the hand, there's so much to it. But uh, this slide, I don't know if we need to say a lot about that. He ends up going through a couple different, uh, almost like a color, you know how you go through your ba your belt ranks? Oh, yeah, with the different outfits he dons over oh, the course right. of the montage of training. Yeah. Gotta have through. a montage. Yeah, he goes through <laughs> about three of them. Then he goes to the library in a scene, he's being introduced to the librarian Wong, and he's returning his books to Wong. And this part was gnarly. I mean, it was really simple. Just a quick little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The books that he returns to Wong are called The Book of the Hidden Sun. Invisible Sun. Sorry, The Book of the Invisible Sun. Is that right? I, took, I wrote it down. Let me double check. Yeah, I wrote them, I wrote them down too. That's why. <laughs> yep, you're right. Book of the Invisible Sun. And the key of Solomon. There's a couple other, I think there's one or two more, but those are the two that were crucial. Codex we know the key Imperium. of Solomon's a real book and it's about, yeah, it's a grimoire about controlling demons by knowing their names. So definitely into that idea of like the spells and power from other dimensions, the dimension of the artificial, the noun, but Hey, did they just tell us that there's an invisible sun? Are they talking about the black sun? Are they talking about the polar vortex at the north? I think they are. I think they're sure hinting at like that, that. I mean, these people wouldn't be fucking around with something untrue. These are the they already told you about the astral realm. They already showed you the they already showed you that the soul transcends death on his psychedelic DMT trip. They're telling you all kinds of things that are real in this film, making it look fantastical, maybe making it look fictional. But they just dropped the hint that <laughs> to just, you know, pair that with the whole fact that you see the Monarch MK Ultra butterfly above the globe Earth just a minute ago. And then he's returning a book called The Book of the Invisible Sun. If you didn't know what they're talking about, with the Invisible Sun, if you didn't know about the polar vortex, if you hadn't studied flat Earth or alternate Earth cosmologies rather than the NASA one. 
you might have no idea what they're talking about. And there's a lot of possibilities to what that might mean. And people interpret it different ways. But man, Black Hole Sun, won't you come? <laughs> they just huge reveal right there that they just breeze right past. And also the, uh, the aspect of uh, the librarian, wasn't Wong not giving up his name? You know, like, you know, it's just Well, he Wong. just goes by one name. That's what's crucial. He's just it's Wong. He doesn't right. have, he just has his Christian name. You know, he's not, exactly. he doesn't have a straw man. He doesn't have a last name. Uh-huh. They make a joke of it though. Like, oh, just Wong, like Bono or Beyonce. <laughs> make a joke of it, but that's actually crucial. Like this guy's not part of the Kronos alconomics slavery system. He doesn't have a straw man. He's just Wong. Oh, you know what? That's a that's a really good point that just hit me. I was trying to think of why they were making a big deal about um, the whole conversation he's having with why don't you? Because at the end of this, when he's starting to starting to come into his power, mm-hmm. and they're being drawn into, well, maybe I should say this. Let me let me say this. But let me say this first. He he talks about. Stop telling me who we aren't. And why don't you guys tell me who we are, who I am, who we are? And they don't answer. They don't answer him. Don't define yourself. I think. Yeah, it's like truth is apophatic. You can only know the truth by knowing what it isn't, because to define the infinite is to immediately be wrong. Exactly. Thank you. The apophatic method. It's all about ruling out the incorrect, but you can never encapsulate or encompass the whole or the pleroma because it's beyond definition. That's what infinite means. It can't be defined. And as soon as you name something, you put a definition on it. You, you put a limit, you put a, this, it's this and it's not that. So that's kind of a positive note to calling the Supreme being or creator uh, aspect of source God or calling it source. You know, in a sense, giving calling something by a title is a double edged sword because right. a title is still not the, the full truth of what it is. But giving it a name like as a noun is also kind of demonizing it in a sense. So I get why it's Lord or God as a title. You know, it's just an attempt. You can describe the infinite without defining it. Description descriptive language is always superior to definitive language right which is which is also bringing in what is important about green language and seeing things from the right brain left brain perspective simultaneously because pure left brain deaf phoenician diction of aries type language is limited in that sense of being prosaic purely prosaic and green language is poetic and prosaic at the same time being able to see the allegory the anagogical the metaphor and not just the literary, literal, historical that would be the left brain. He's not Wong. (laughs) (laughs) So next we find out that the villain of the movie, the book that he stole spells from, or that he stole pages from, is the the Book of Cagliostro. Yes. Juan would be into that. I wanted to get, I wanted (laughs) to get some time in to look into Cagliostro more to say why that would be a, the name chosen. You know, isn't that like a historical or possible mythological alchemist? I don't know a lot about Cagliostro. 
I guess I could check the Wikipedia Wiki idea page. Uh huh. I think uh, I think Juan Ayala. Oh, and the book is called Study on Time. Okay. Uh, interesting. Really. It's a SOD. But, but there, see that lamp in that picture? It looks a lot like the the bell from the beginning that turned into a bowl in that exact spot where the librarian got his head chopped off. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we are in the exact place where that happened right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a uh, that whole thing in that yeah uh, that initiation. Another aspect is the fact that there was one page. Uh, there was an exchange going on there. It's like you, we just want this page. You keep the book. We just want the head. You keep the body. Uh, just some interesting uh, balance to the ingredients. Uh, but this is the part where he finds out that there were bad students have come before uh, and abused the knowledge of the library, right? Yeah, I just did a quick Wikipedia, actually a Google search on Cagliostro. Uh-huh. And what's hilarious, this is part of why this stuff is so inundated into our popular culture, in my opinion. Same with video games, big time. It's gotten to the point when you search and search some term that has some mythological significance, the top search results are going to be some video game that ripped that word oh, yeah. or that name and made it part of their fictional universe. Right. And that the top so of the Google search results for Cagliostro is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Cagliostro is a sorcerer and is mentioned frequently in the film Doctor Strange. And it just becomes this self-referential loop of referencing itself in a, in a loop, time loop. Yeah. Now, but there's also a Cagli- Cagliostro uh, that was the occultist Giuseppe Balsamo, an Italian adventurer and self-styled magician from the 18th century. So I'm sure that there's uh, more to know about him, but probably a John D. character associated mm-hmm. with the royal royal courts, I would guess. But we don't have time to digress into that too much. But the search results are just polluted on on these topics by fiction. It reminds me of that Carrington event thing. That like the evidence that the Carrington event happened is because the Internet says it did. (laughs) (laughs) Did we um, did we talk about the the space for spells? When the the ancient one takes him to a to a spot where she says you need a safe space to practice your spells. Oh yeah, she a little mirror later they show him the uh, the mirror dimension. Okay, that's later. It's a okay. little later. I was wondering if you guys felt cool with taking a brief intermission. We're a little more than halfway through our slides. We're, at th- we're about to hit slide 30 of 51 or 52. And I thought I would just play our, our intro music video. Some people yeah. might not have even caught it at the beginning. And all of us can get up, maybe use the restroom, refill our waters. I think we ought to do that. I, I'm making an executive decision. We're at about <laughs> two hours. You know, we, might hit us, we might hit it four Let's hours with this one possibly. So we're going to take about a four, uh, three and a half minute break, I would say. Three and a half minutes. You guys cool with that? Yep, yep. Cool. Sounds good. All right. And we'll come back. All right.
All right. Where you at, boys? All right. We're ready to go. That was much needed. Fill up my water. I recently got on spring water rather than reverse osmosis city tap water. So cheers. Nice. Also going to plug the, um, the music I made that video with is by my buddy David, a.k.a. Wisdom Traders. I dropped a link to that in the chat, and it's also in the episode description if you're catching this somewhere other than live. Love that guy's music. Love that dude. Had a lot of fun putting that video together today. So, where we were at in the film, in the middle of his training sequence, we get shown what the bad guys are up to. And wouldn't you know it, they're doing evil magic spells. (laughs) And I believe this represents our transition into Aquarius. And you may see why. So here's the screenshot. Oops. Add to screen. Yeah. Screenshot. Here they are. They're doing their spell to contact Dormammu and draw power from the dark dimension. In a cathedral. Drawing power in a cathedral. Need I say more? I don't know. I think to this crowd, I probably don't need to say more. Yeah, man. It's even got that, uh, oh, what is it? Verizon pink or the, what do they call it? Electric pink? The T-Mobile? Yeah. The T-Mobile pink. <laughs> the 5G pink. For 5G, yeah. Yeah, and that symbol to me is reminiscent of a butterfly too. To get back into, and kind of reminiscent of a skull. So there's a lot of we're talking Aquarius like this. This looks like the, the eye holes and this is the bottom part of the skull. We're talking Aquarius. We're talking John the Baptist. This is the evil secret society. They're the Templars. Yeah. They're, you know, they're corrupting the sanctified space. This is very Aquarius in that sense. Yes. Great call. What's this guy's name? Kylinius? I don't know. He's the bad guy to me. I didn't Kylinius? quite bother getting his name memorized. Uh-huh. My bad. You know it, Gordy? Maybe I'll just look it up real quick. Um, I, you know what? I've got the IMDb up right now. Mads Mikkelsen is Kale- so it's K-A-E-C-I-L-I-U-S. Kalesius? Kalesius. Kalesius. Thank you. That's it. Kalesius. Yeah, there you go. Cody, Cody says it's an owl face. Gordy's not going to like that. Oh, it's an yeah. elephant. That's an elephant. <laughs> it's a. It's the trunk and the and the tusks and the ears. It's an elephant. <laughs> it's not an owl. Leave owls my are, owl babies alone. Owls are torsions, man. Owls are torsions. And so, the owl is a, a torus shape with an Aries shape inside it. Makes a exact replication of a great horned owl. Anyway, we'll go back to the subject at hand, which is Doctor Strange. We are where in the movie? So, uh, yeah, we saw what they were up to. They, they drew power from the dark dimension. And we can leave that at that point if you guys don't want to say anything else about it. Um, we're going to talk more about the dark dimension anyway and those characters as we go forward. But to continue the theme of Aquarius that we're in Aquarius next, it cuts to strange being introduced to the sling ring sling ring, which is the magical implement that allows them to create portals. 
again, Aquarius has to do with freedom of travel, freedom of movement. So they're able to travel anywhere that they can visualize now that they have this power, the trainees. And that is the bell from the initiation of the movie. Yes, it is. That is the initiation bell. And we're about to get some trauma-based training uh, in the next scene. Yeah, you want to tell us what happened here? <laughs> I think Gabriel's got this one unlocked because we're going to get into the Crowley of it all. Yes, this is this is really crucial now. You know, uh, I, like we said already, we're not completely uh, bogged down by any kind of dogma about this whole theory. Uh, you know, I see aspects of many other characters incorporated into Doctor Strange, but this in particular, I think, is uh, hailing back to the myth about Aleister Crowley in the fact that he was an accomplished mountaineer, as uh, also so was his rival of his day. The two most uh, accomplished magicians were also very accomplished mountaineers. And there is a lot going on uh, with those two corresponding facts. But this is the part where Dr. Strange is brought by the Ancient One up to the Himalayan mountains. And the Ancient One says, yeah, I reckon within a couple minutes you'll probably have hyperthermia. And she pieces out on him and leaves him up there, leaves him stranded so that he can rise to the occasion and uh, make the portal work for the first time on his own. And this is so correspondent with the story of Aleister Crowley who allegedly went hiking with a bunch of people up on a mountaintop in, in the Himalayas, in the Himalayas where he did, they did not agree on where to camp. So Alistair went up and did his own campsite on his own and left the group in this dangerous location. And an avalanche cam came and wiped out the, the people he was with. And he's the only one who came down off the mountain that day. So this is a very powerful correspondent scene to the myth of Aleister Crowley and the making, the defining moment of, uh, of Stephen Strange here. And again, it's right in front of the bell that was the initiation bell at the beginning where the trauma happened in the first place of this movie starting off with the decapitation. Yes, and so she basically takes him here and then she dips. And it's like, you're either going to figure out how to make a portal or you're going to die. And he's having trouble because he's overly intellectualizing it. And he's also convinced that his hands can't do it because they're too damaged and shaky. So I thought maybe Gordy could give us some uh, analysis of this idea of surrender to feel into the flow of chi that was important for him to like sort of move his ego out of the way and move his intellect out of the way to activate his real power. Yeah, that's uh, when you're at the end of your rope, that's all you've got is surrender. That's being forced into it. Now, surrender can be, surrender is a choice. It's the ultimate choice that you have to give whatever power you have to whatever power that wants it, right? It's actually probably an idea. Philema, which is the, you know, thy will, do as thou will type of deal. It could be interpreted as that sort of egoic satanic, like do anything, nothing matters. Or it could be interpreted as the highest law is do as thou wilt, because the thou that is willing could be referential to the higher will of the cosmos. 
you know, you're getting your little microcosmic self in alignment with the big self, which is the all. Yeah. And thus you can do anything and you have free will. You become, your will becomes freed paradoxically by surrendering to higher forces or greater forces. Right. And there's a big difference between surrendering and submitting. When you submit your, your, you know, your prostrate, you, you're putting your somebody, something else above yourself. When you're surrendering, it's, it's an agreement. Like I will allow you to do this kind of thing, but that's, and that whole, uh, that scene reminded me of Wim Hof. So I, I did some stuff this winter where I would go out shirtless, freezing cold weather and try the, try the, uh, Wim Hof breathing. And <clears throat> when you surrender and go, okay, okay, I'm going to do this. And you do the breathing, it works. And when you stop breathing, it stops working. Right. So that, but when you're surrendering to the, your body, like the natural law, this is, this is the thing that, that, um, Mordo is talking about is submitting to natural law. Our natural law is actually a magical law. Like there is magic in nature. I didn't know this until I sat and had a relationship with owls. Thank you, Cody, for bringing that up because it's not lost on me that I, I had to submit to those not submit, but surrender with those owls, not to the owls. But when I surrender, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to hurt you. I, I surrender my, you know, my sword kind of thing. My intention of, of, uh, fear. You, yeah. Fear. Okay, so it's about fear. potential versus limitation. And it is a paradox, like many truths in reality, in reality are like the metaphor that's given. Is it okay that I just cut in? Yeah, dude, keep going. (laughs) I just realized like I just stomped on you. Didn't mean to. (laughs) Okay. So, cause I really like what you're saying. I want to point out the metaphor used in the film by the ancient one, which is you cannot beat a river into submission. You must learn to surrender to its flow and harness the power of its movement in a sense. So surrender, a great comment Cody made is submission is against one's will. Surrender is from a meeting of the minds. And in the metaphor of the river, you're meeting the mind of cosmos or universe by going with the flow, flow state. (laughs) You know, dancing is a perfect example of this. There's dancing that is awkward, jerky movements where you're trying to look cool or trying to do it right. And then there's dancing where you are without thought without any intent other than you are so synchronized with what is in your environment and what is in the present moment a la the music that your body is practically moving of its own accord and in the latter state you'll do much greater things than in the former state when you're trying to control in that way you know it will look awkward it will look jerky there will be a disconnect because you no matter how fast you think you can think there will always be that millisecond delay between you controlling the action 
and you being in sync with the moment and the beat. And so surrender in a flow state sense, you are actually, you are actually breaking down the particle wave duality, the inner outer barrier and your movement is the music, right? The beat hitting is what moved you. Qigong is very much something that can teach you this, where you can get to the state as a practitioner that instead of holding a posture or instead of moving your hands, for example, you know, they teach you in Qigong that you're going to put this energy bubble between your hands. And then as you, uh, as you inhale, it's going to grow. And as you exhale, it's going to shrink. And at first you're controlling that you're, you're trying to focus on your breathing and then you're moving your hands and you're trying to make them happen at the same time. But they're at, with experience and with surrender and letting go into the process, which is what the repetition allows for, because eventually you'll just sort of lose yourself in it. Now, all of a sudden, the energy ball is really there because all you're doing is breathing. And as you breathe, you feel your hands pushing out as if there's something in between your hands pushing them. But all you're doing is breathing in and out. This is kind of what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, awesome. a it's a very... Difficult to describe and put it to language process, but it applies to so much of life. Okay. So um, Dr. Randolph Stone in the Mystic Bible calls it Havilah. Nice. Havilah is the current or flow. It's this it's the land, sand land is the literal translation, but it's it's the sand that moves with the water, not a not the stone that that forces against the water it's the flow that that the land flows with the water it's like in accordance with the force that's moving it like so there's an agreement with the land and the water and we move and allow the energy and we allow the energy to move within us as well as without us and like i've talked about to you guys before i don't know if i've ever talked about it anywhere else but moving that energy it's like it's like you're the forge you're the anvil and you're taking that piece of steel that molten steel and you're and you're molding it and you're pushing it together over and over again and you're pushing it out and you're pushing it in and all the different levels layers that you're pushing in this energy is concentrating it and purifying it once every, every time you do that. But that's because when you're in accordance with the energy, when you're in surrender with natural law, it allows you to do that. You take that energy and that energy can heal you. And you so, can, this can be taught. Another way of considering it too is like a lot of people will have trouble with this idea of surrender because they're like, well, I've heard this word before and it's like, I'm giving up the war. I lose. <laughs> and it is kind of like a, let, a letting up yeah. of control. But what sure. we're talking about here is reframing your emphasis from control to intent. It doesn't mean that you're not still intending for a direction intending for an outcome. Mm -hmm. It means that the difference between fear and love is fear tries to constrict and control outcomes down to a single resolution that the fear mind believes is the only way things could be okay. 
and love is the recognition and allowance of potential. A parent loves their child unconditionally and only wants the child to be able to express themselves in whatever way they see fit without limiters put on their potential, except maybe in a sense of like guiding them away from harmful potentials. But you get my drift. Love, true unconditional love even would say, go into the negative potential too. That's going to teach you too. <laughs> go into the whatever expression of potential that you want because nature when it's left alone and allowed to do its thing it auto corrects it self balances it cures our body heals itself so yeah control is an illusion shireen says brilliantly brilliantly succinct way of putting it and so this surrender concept is so deep it's so so important and it's none of us like the three of us talking are masters of it there is no mastering of it it's layers and layers of this onion. And we find new areas that we were trying to control rather than trusting universe, trusting life, trusting ourself, that our intention is enough to guide us. It's kind of like the difference between a combustion engine and a sail. You know, that's what flow versus control is really like. But we're digressing a lot on, on this. Yeah, <laughs> it's a beautiful, very important spiritual thing to, to digress on. But I think we've probably said enough for now in terms of the percentage of time that <laughs> we spend on it. But eventually you're, you have to trust something, right? You have to, you have to do the trust fall to do, to be able to do the study and practice. It's, that is the practice. The practice is allowing, surrendering to yourself being the power. The power is in there. You just have to trust that. Trust yourself enough to allow it to happen. So anyway, um, I just think it was amazing that that this whole thing comes back to <laughs> Mystic Bible and like it's just <laughs> fucking amazing. And uh, you know, and teaching intuition, you know, that can be taught as well. You you can you can have little practice and study we if you want to get uh shaman stones i'll give them to you if you pay me shipping i'll send them to you anybody that that wants this you want uh, some gordy balls yes. he's not lying he sent me some I balls i will do you hold one in the front and move them and then it's like a sling ring and i have <laughs> i have Big, huge balls, my friends. These suckers are heavy. Yeah, how come I got these tiny balls? This ain't right. Because <laughs> these don't come, cost me 40 bucks to ship. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'd be, I'm good for it. I'm, yeah. Can I trade, can uh, I dude, trade you I balls? I will hook you up. I, I will oh, I'm just kidding, up. man. Um, but I do want bigger <laughs> balls. Okay, so I'm going to move us forward into the next part of the the film is he's reaching the completion phase of his training. He's mastering the deepest secrets of the occult. He's mastered his unconscious in a way, not fully mastered. There's no end to that journey, but he's reached a phase of completion of this leg of the journey. So Pisces, Pisces, anybody symbolizing the deep spiritual truth, the end of the Zodiac. Here he is. <laughs> he's so adept now that he can take the, the books he's not supposed to know things about the deep secrets, the super occult stuff from the library without even being noticed. And that's kind of a funny scene because Wong is listening to Beyonce while this is happening. <laughs> uh, he's listening to put a ring on it 
could not be more Kronos type song if there ever was one. As a ring opens in the sky and hands take a book away. Hands. Here's the hands again, right? Yep. But um, further into this Piscean theme, Pisces is deeply symbolic of like the astral realm, you know, the uh, the dream realm. It is the even delusional realm. That's what connects it to dream. And he is so adept at this level that while his physical body sleeps, he can read books in his astral form. And this is akin to like basketball players who treat, treat, uh, teach themselves the lucid dream and practice free throws while they're dreaming and actually get better at it. I thought that yeah. was kind of, I thought I really liked this part. I was like, that's cool. He's gaining yeah. the knowledge in his sleep. This part, uh, to me, absolutely is a, a hailing back to uh, Edgar Casey, who was known to read in his sleep. Uh, that was one of his first tricks. He, he could liked. just know a book by touching it. He would know it was in it, right? Yeah, he fell asleep with it, with his head on it. And the next day, he had his dad quiz him, and he was able to answer all the questions out of the book. And uh so yeah, that aspect is very Edgar Casey for sure. So I grabbed the screenshots just because we wanted to say, okay, we've gone through the whole sky clock. I didn't even know that was there till I was grabbing screenshots, but the journey from Aries to Pisces is quite evident when you break it down through the images. I was like, wow, is every yeah. movie going to have that? <laughs> is that what? I mean, is this what Joseph Campbell was figuring out? I mean, is that even yeah. intentional? Is that just something that happens in the hero's journey every time in some way or another? Yeah. It, eventually it's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So here's the part you were talking about where she's like, a uh, sorcerer needs a place to practice his spells and she teaches him about the mirror dimension. And that's all well and good. And we can talk about mirror dimension more if we want. But this is the point where I want to start to dig into just what does the ancient one really represent? Because it's been revealed that there's more to her than we know. Mordo says something along those lines. And uh, Strange is like, how old is she? Where is she from? He's trying to learn more. He's a, he's very curious at this point. And it's revealed that she is Celtic, y'all. Yeah. Do we have any Michael Tessarion fans in the house? <laughs> Irish origins of civilization? Anybody? Because yes. there is a strong thread of evidence that Tessarion has put forward for years and was the first thrust of his work as an author with Irish, Irish origins of civilization. Uh, well, I guess maybe that wasn't his first book, but it's way, it's up there in the beginning, maybe second book. And the idea is that and this gets back to the hidden sun, Hyperborea, the polar vortex. Tessarion and other authors that have deeply studied the occult and the mystic traditions of the world have put forward the idea that what we see occurring in the Far East that seems like the origin point of Western occultism actually originated over in the West, that the Irish you know, the myth of the Tuatha Dé Danann, the Hyperboreans. The Druids say that they received their transmission of knowledge from the High Aria that came from a northern homeland. And then the migratory pattern followed that took them to the Far East. So she's the ancient one, T-A-O, Tao, the Tao. This goes all the way to the East in the form of Taoism and then migrates back west gradually throughout history, first into 
the India region, Ethiopia, it was, mm-hmm. or Hindustan, and then further off into Egypt after that. And then we even know it's more widely accepted that when the Hyksos dynasty was, uh, you know, forced to exodus from Egypt, that the daughter of Akhenaten, the pharaoh who was the, you know, the heliocentrist, heliocentricist that tried to reduce their pantheon down to just one sun god, his daughter, Scotia, went to the British Isles and Scotland is named after Scotia. Yes. So the ancient one is Celtic. No one knows how old she is. She's the sorcerer supreme of the earth. This is like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're telling you Tessarion was right. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that she she, that she rocks that bald crown. Um, and androgynous as fuck. Is androgynous right. yes. as a mofo, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's definitely some very old, old traditions upheld. Um, uh, Herodotus asserts that the Egypto priesthood uh, would rock a bald head, that they were way into shaving their head bald. Yeah, that was the initiation into adulthood. Yes. The children wore a side ponytail on the left, and then that was shaved to symbolize that they were transitioning to adulthood or adepthood. Yeah, Mike, Alpha Warrior, this is Atlantis, what we're talking about. We're talking Hyperborea, the Arctic homeland, the High Aria. I mean, let's just put it this way. Um, Iran has the very same mythos. Iran, you can look into Jason Giorgiani's work for this. Iran, Ireland, Irie, Iroquois, Aria, Arian. Not the Nazi version of Aryans. That's a corruption of the idea, just like they corrupted the swastika to throw people off Mm -hmm. the trail. The Arya are not a race. This is not about racism. It's a caste. It's a priest class. Like Mike says, sons of the law of one is a great way of putting it Mm -hmm. because it's this spiritual warfare that's gone on throughout time between those who recognize the one within all versus the external rulership of the Kronos or the Helios the cult of hell, the Heliots, <laughs> Hellenes, right? Elios, Helios, Hell, <laughs> uh, Elites. Okay, so in Greek, if you were talking about the Hellenes, which were the Greeks, they would pronounce it the, they would have pronounced it Hellenes. Right. Talking about Elites, Elites, servants of El. The Hebrew cult is the same thing. There's been a spiritual warfare between this group that puts the power in the internal versus the group that puts the power in the external, right? It's been going on for ages. And and her primary transgression is uh, pretending to be uh, in the, in the public and, you know, transparent when in fact she's wheeling and dealing in the private, she's got secrets. And we knew that in the beginning when she comes out and she's got her face covered in that hood. You know, it's obscuring that uh, that Dormammu mark that she rocks in her forehead, which puts turns the powers on. Yes, she's also just like the bad guys. The reason why she has the book of Cagliostro, the study on time, chained up is because she doesn't want anyone to know that she herself did the ritual and does the ritual to draw power from the dark dimension to be immortal. and. 
when we get to the end and we're seeing Dormammu for what he is, we'll we'll return to this idea of the ancient one and we'll connect even more to the the ancient one being a reference to the as a Celtic to being a reference to the Arya and uh <laughs> the the issue that she has for bad dealings in the private. Very relevant observation. But we'll move forward in the plot for now. Uh, I just grabbed this screenshot because I was like <laughs> noticing that he's emailing Christine Palmer and it shows him typing. And it's like, Christ, just in case you didn't know, we're doing Christ metaphors in this movie. <laughs> um, all right. And oh, wait, more biblical stuff. OK, so he's in the library. He's gone in there when there's nobody watching him. Wong isn't around. He calls out looking for Wong. He wants to access the book of Cagliostro, the forbidden, the forbidden knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And before he gets into it and goes and grabs the eye of Agamotto out of the back and starts to do the ritual to experiment with time, he bites the apple, y'all. I mean, that is some pretty on the nose symbolism. Yeah. Initiation. He is for apple. Yeah. So we go into Apple at all. Oops, we don't, right? Just accidentally jumped way far ahead. No, we don't need to say more about the Apple. I mean, could it be more obvious? <laughs> and, um, before we go too much further, um, she says something interesting to him. Um, before she sends him to his to the other the mirror room, right? Where she he asks he's asking her about. Uh, the practice and spells. And she says that, um, I can't remember how she puts it, but I, in my notes, I write infinite multiverse um, includes infinite dangers. So she's initiating him into understanding that the multiverse or whatever, which is also the way they understand it is not correct, but that, Infinity has an infinite amount of dangers. That's exactly, exactly true. And she says, if I told you everything else, you'd run in terror, which is what I, I think a lot of us, especially the last few years, or we're seeing a lot in a lot of people that are just waking up to a lot of certain things that have been going on for a long time that a lot of us have seen for a long time. Mm-hmm. and. People are having a really hard time dealing with this part of their reality that they never thought existed. They never, and this is part of why surrender is a very important thing that you need to, you know, sometimes we need to surrender what we think we know is truth. And going back to, because it's, it's difficult. It's hard. You know, people have psychotic breaks, literally psychotic breaks. So if you flow, you chill, just surrender, let let it happen. Understand that the universe has infinite possibilities, but those infinite possibilities are infinite blessings as well. The reason why the phrase, this too shall pass, the story behind it is because of some king that wanted his uh, his uh, magi or, or court wise men 
he said he wanted a phrase that could be used in famine and in plenty. That meant the same thing. And he said, this too shall pass. So yeah, there are infinite dangers and that this too shall pass, but there are infinite blessings too. That's probably going to pass too. But this is, these are the two pillars. These are the two pillars that we're standing in and we got to sit. The infinite is in that center in that liminal space in the Wakanda or the Kamertage kingdoms, the, the liminal spaces. Anyway, I just wanted to make that point real quick before I went too far. I see some good stuff. We do have some Tassarion students in here because people in the chat are talking about the female Illuminati. Gosh, oh, I really yeah. hope I can get him back on Interverse to talk about female Illuminati. It would be overdue, but I feel like I'm ready. <laughs> it's a it's a scary topic. <laughs> okay, so he bites the apple. He's reading from the forbidden book of knowledge of time, and then he grabs the eye of Agamato. And I mean, the one eye symbolism is obvious, but what what does Agamato mean? Who's that? They say in the movie that he is the first Sorcerer Supreme, the one that everyone learned the magic from. Oh, boy, are they telling you some shit with that. Aga <laughs> means noble or lord. Motto means word. We know that. It is the Lord word. It is literally the logos. And where is mythologically the language said to have come from in the first place? The sun, y'all. Casting shadows, giving you the Hebrew letter characters as they go through the capstone on the top of the pyramid. This is the mythology of the origin of Hebrew, which is like the, you know, the magical language. But it's probably not Hebrew that was the origin. It probably goes back to Sanskrit before that and probably goes back to something earlier before that. But another word that I thought would be really important to get into with Agamato is Agatha, Agatho Daimon. This is a Greek word that means Good shepherd or good serpent. Okay. Oh, and serpent is phallic symbolism. We're talking about the father, the, the Lord, the rock. <laughs> We're talking about the eye, the eye of not just this, the all seeing eye that is the sun, but also the eye of the, you know, your other head. <laughs> this is the castrated phallus of Osiris right here. <laughs> symbolically, you know, this is the eye of his dick in the box. <laughs> It's the time stone that's in here. You know, it's the stone, it's the rock, it's the Lord, it's the Agatha diamond. Um, The ophiolatry of this is, is, is subtle in the way that we're presenting it, but it's so there. Domo arigato agamato. (laughs) Good one, JDP. (laughs) So what to say about that? I mean, the idea is that agamato being the one that gave them all their, their sorcery, their magic. I think they're referring to the fact that the the sun is the diamond of many names that the heliocentric cult, the one that worships the external Lord, the Zoroaster, the rock star Zoroaster means rock star, just in case anyone missed that Mm -hmm. is, you know, the reason it's the diamond of many names is because it's, or the Agatha diamond is because the sun is actually all of the mythological characters of the that are attributed to the planet the wandering stars if you will 
Mercury was the sun at one point uh, as a myth in mythology. Kronos was actually the sun. It's the sun in winter. Saturn is a name for the sun. All of these seemingly separate entities are, uh, the illusion is that they're separate, just like our illusion is that we are separate and that there's an external savior, the Messiah op, the Messiah psyop, Messiah ops. So I'm probably getting too far into like proselytizing spiritually here, but <laughs> the Eye of Agamotto is super crucial because in it, where the time stone is at, that's what gives him, that's what makes him the next Sorcerer Supreme in a sense. Right. I mean, that's where all this is leading is that he's the replacement Sorcerer Supreme after the uh, the Ancient One bites it later. Yeah. And so he's the Time Lord. He becomes the, he's the son of the sun. Okay, he's the son of God. He's the Christ metaphor. We're going to see that really clearly. Uh, you guys want to say anything about Eye of Agamotto? Yeah. Uh, before we go forward? Because there's more to it. I mean, he makes the apple come back. He like reverses the flow of time on the book and yeah. reveals the hidden pages. That's how he finds out that the Ancient One was doing dark dimension siphoning energy to be immortal. Yeah. What do you guys got on this? This is such a crucial plot element in terms of a a MacGuffin type object do do literally do sex machina right here. Yes. Uh, so it definitely brings to mind that phrase who controls the past now controls the future who controls the present now controls the past something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it, it has, you know, this becomes his, uh, Dr. Strange's, uh, main trick is the ability to alter time. You know, this becomes his, he, he takes dominion over uh, almost replacing Saturn in a weird way. Uh, through That's what the son of the sun does, you know? Yeah, yeah. Castrates the father, he took the father's stone. He took the Osirian phallus. Yep. And the fact that he's going, you know, he's bringing in the apple symbology is absolutely hailing back to that placenta, the tree of, of life. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I totally dig it. Another uh, component in the concept of law, this is where uh, Plato actually would go on about how writing language removes its power, takes power away from it when it's, get, when it's written down. And that's a really interesting philosophical uh, thing to, cont to contemplate. But one thing, one power that writing things down presumes to have falsely is that it can edit the past, that it can change things. You can uh, tweak details so that it plays into the way you want it, the story to be told. Um, so Alchemizing large, fiction into reality, baby. Yeah. So to a large degree, this magical stone is very much symbolic of the Great Reset. Uh, that will become a reoccurring theme uh, throughout the Marvel uh, series going forward. But it's, it's very just, Kaba too, because it's like the stone that's in the middle of their center of worship. Yes, yes, and uh, and it's just interesting that it. There's also always uh, aspects of like mass trauma uh, involved in it. Like because the building gets destroyed and there's people running through the streets and they're getting crushed by buildings. So it has this rewriting of traumatic experiences 
that his uh, time warping abilities seems to always encapsulate a, a trauma removal. Uh, but he gets himself in more trouble because he's always chasing his own tail, trying to make things right when he messes with the outcomes. Hmm. Okay, so next it's revealed to him. He's like, this is the part actually where he's like, you never, you always told me who we're not, but you never told me who we are mm-hmm. to Mordo. He wants to know who they really are now that because he's getting chastised by Wong and by um, Mordo for fucking with the eye of Agamotto and he shouldn't have, you know, he's crossing boundaries that he shouldn't. And they start explaining to him how their role is to protect the earth from interdimensional threats, multiversal threats, mystical threats. And they show him the dark dimension. Oh, shit. Are those coronavirus spike proteins? Is that cooties? Is cooties on the way? Are they protecting the world from cooties right now? Bada boom, my friend. Hmm. Corona, cosmic coronaviruses. Yeah, buddy. Four this years not, before. This is not unimportant <laughs> that we see this type of look like uh, viral symbolism coming up here. 2016, right? Is when it came out. Yeah, 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, there was already the Corona meme put in in the Captain America movie, which far preceded this. Right. I believe that was like 2010, man. Yes. The 36th triangular number. It's 2016. 216 syllables in the 72 names of God that are three syllables each. Thanks for that point, pointing that out, um, Joshua. You know, 216 is two towers. It's the 16 by 16, the magical square of Benjamin Franklin. All of that has a lot to do. All of that is stuff we've talked about elsewhere and too much to get into. That's why these streams are so crazy because there's so many tangents that are just like, here you go. We're giving you a little clue that the stuff you've been talking about. Yeah, it's here. You know, here it is dangling the carrots for people like us. They got people like, the three of us spending hours breaking down their, their movies. <laughs> I think the only value in it is that we're able to do it in a way that becomes available to our, our community so that they can find out about some of these concepts and look further on their own or get some verification for what they were seeing on their own. I mean, I like that we're doing this, but dang, it's like, it's a, it's a lot of work sifting through their their fiction, <laughs> but it's, this is good training for all of us. Everybody who's, who's watching us now or in the future or, mm-hmm. or doing it with us right now, everything you watch, everything you take in as media or story or anything needs to be examined this in yeah. some way because they're teaching you there. There's always layers, no matter what. Yeah. And uh, back to Cesarion, he so wisely said long ago and probably says it regularly, symbolic literacy is psychic self-defense. I could not repeat that enough times. Yeah, agreed. Okay. So um, skipping forward, the sanctums get attacked and I just grab, you know, the bad guy, what's his face? He attacks the sanctums. He kills the guardian of the New York sanctum. Strange gets into a fight with him and two or three of his acolytes. and. I grabbed this screenshot because the dude is like manipulating physical reality. You know, he's doing mirror dimension stuff, not in the mirror dimension. 
He's making, he's alchemizing the fictional world and bringing it into the real world, right? That's what it represents. The power of the dark dimension that he's drawing on is allowing him to give birth to things that should only exist in the fictional realm, like the manipulation of matter. They call it folding matter or whatever. And I think interesting too, the symbolism of the hanged man right here and his eyes are darkened, very Odinic, very much like the sacrifice made to gain the knowledge of the runes or the power. The knowledge of the runes is literally like the two-dimensional realm, you know, the sigils, the writing. So he, uh, you want to say anything about that before we push forward? Yeah, well, yeah, one thing is... Or just about know, the attack on the sanctums in general. Too. Yeah, so uh, for one, he uh, changes the grade of the incline of the hallway, which uh, for me makes me think of... Um, uh, manipulation of the currency, you know, what the strength of the money that we use in the system. That's something that I saw that being a, a metaphor for. Um, and also, uh, you mentioned the, just the general attack on the sanctum. This is absolutely the part where the Battle of the Blythe and Aleister Crowley's story of uh, attacking uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn's uh, lodge uh, definitely plays into that scene right there where all the lodges are being attacked simultaneously. Um, so, yeah, I just think that uh, I believe he gets kicked down a stairwell uh, in that fight scene. Uh, oh, you mean right here? There it is. He's this being is kicked it. over the banister to fall down the stairs, and there's, yeah, there's that mythology of Crowley Fall, getting pushed down the stairs, right? By Yates. Yeah. By Yates. And uh, just in case this seems like a stretch, there's a repetition of this symbolism in Spider-Man No Way Home, where Crowley, I mean, Strange, slips while he's coming down the stairs. Yep. Consistency. It's the hallmark of truth. So he gets pushed down the stairs. This looks like he's going to break his neck. This is it for him. This is his death, you know, completing the cycle of Pisces. Death happens. And then he rises. He is reborn with his red cape, his Martian red Aries cape. He is risen, our Lord and Savior. (laughs) And this is the completion of that zodiacal circuit. And he rises. He wins this fight. It even makes me think about the the term the kids started using a couple of years ago to when you yeet something. Yeah. You did. Oh yeah. Like because the poet Yates <laughs> who was the Yeats. one who supposedly threw him down the stairs. Yep. I Yates it. <laughs> yeah. So he rises, he wins the fight. He does get stabbed. There's more to this scene, but we're getting into the portion of the film where a lot of it is just like action and I mean, there's still stuff that you could decode in symbolism, but it's mostly just expanded action scenes because we're heading into the third act. So plot wise, we'll probably move forward a lot quicker to get to the end, even though in terms of how much time would be left on the clock of this movie, it's probably like a third left. But just saying all that, I don't know why I felt the need for the disclaimer, but there it is. <laughs> he rises. He uh, he wins the fight. He gets stabbed in the chest. By the ethereal, ethereal, ethereal shadow dimension, dark dimension blade. Mm-hmm. So that's also sort of a Christ thing in the sense that, you know, he is wounded. 
by the a spear type of deal. It's not exactly in the side. It's closer to his heart, but still, I feel like that fits the uh, the Christ metaphor. Now, let me check my notes because I haven't looked at my notes for a while. Yeah, I'm doing great. You, <laughs> cool. I'm doing great. I'm not. I've got notes in two places, but I'm not missing anything out of the notebook. Mostly, my memory caught all that. Uh, what happens next is he chains up the bad guy. You know, he he's got him. He's got him on the ropes. He used some artifact to do that. But while this bad dude, what's his face, is chained up, he's saying, you know, he's talking shit to Doctor Strange. I want to point out before I talk about what he said, because it's really important. I want to point out his his eyes. Scaly. They look like reptilian eyes. You know, it's kind of reminds me of the like the black eye club of the Illuminati lore. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm just maybe there's not a lot to make of this other than interesting that there's this reptilian scaliness around his eyes, right? He's being corrupted by the dark dimension. He's possessed in a sense. It's Caecilius, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that Kai makes me think of the the key in the word pharmakia. Just an interesting, uh, that's a pattern I've been seeing a lot lately. Yeah, Kaecilius. On screen share. <laughs> he caught me. I was going to look up Caecilius and be like, what can I dig on his, <laughs> what can I dig out of his name etymologically? Probably not important. Nah, everything's important, but we'll, we'll move okay. on. Because he's got the word cycles. Phonetically, he's got the word cycles in his name. Go ahead. I wanted to add, ask Gabe uh-huh. about the uh, battle on Blythe Street. Because isn't that what all wizard battle in culture is kind of based on? I mean, this fight I takes know. place on Bleecker Street. Bleecker, <laughs> Blythe is pretty close. Oh, wow. Great point. Right. The and movie The Sanctum is on Bleecker Street. That is such a good point. Man, nice. You know, in the movie The Raven in 1963, it's is a, it's, I mean, they took a lot of license with Edgar Allan Poe's uh, Raven, of course. But uh-huh. um, in the movie, the 1963 movie The Raven, there's a wizard battle between Boris Karloff oh, and yeah. Vincent Price. Yes, which is fucking rad. If you have never seen The Raven, I love that cheesy. Cheesy monster stuff is like my jam. I love it. But I remember hearing about that scene being inspired by the, by the mythology of the Blythe Street thing. Oh, that's that, funny. The, the wizard battle. It's like, oh, you do this? Oh, I, I, make, I make a little shield to catch your, your magic knives and stuff like that. It's, it's just fun. You should, anybody should, should go watch that movie. But uh, I think it's it, it is interesting. Yeah, the Battle of the Blythe. Uh, you know, it uh, it has always has multiple sides. Like everybody tells it from uh, you know, like from Crowley's journal or from Yates' journal, and then some people read it from the because uh, there were police officers actually brought on the scene, and uh, I think Crowley like changes the locks on the place. And he's trying to get a hold of their uh, their inner sanctum. There's like a some sort of a chest or a chest uh, 
that he's trying to get a uh, possession of. And then they show, and then the Golden Dawn guys show up with a bunch of muscles, like hired muscle. Uh, and there's an altercation, and Crowley gets kicked down the stairs, allegedly. But yeah. So to come back to this part, what he says to Doctor Strange at this point is, I mean, he says more than this, but the most important things about it is he's talking about why he's trying to bring Dormammu into the world and what Dormammu is going to do in this dark dimension coming to Earth is going to do is pull the Earth into the dark dimension. And he says that the reason he's doing that is actually to save everybody from death and from time. That by bringing the earth into the dark dimension, nobody will die and nobody will be enslaved by time. He says, in the end and the beginning, it's the end and the beginning. The many becoming the few, becoming the one. He's purging the multivirus. Remember what we talked about almost the entire Spider-Man No Way Home movie? And I'm sure this is going to come back. Sure, it's going to come back. The whole coronavirus transhumanism op is the purging, is the is uh, inoculating us against the multivirus, which is to say a metaphor for extinguishing the unity of humanity, bringing us into an artificial state of oneness, where instead of being one from within, we are externally forced into conformity from without. It is the myth of equality. It is the lie of all government. The only equality that can be legally instituted or externally mandated, what have you, is equality of misery. You cannot bring everyone up to the highest level. You can only bring people down, push them down to the lowest common denominator. So he's saying that they're all going to join and become one with Dormammu. The, you know, this is the, this is Kronos eating his children <laughs> in, a, in a sense. This is like that Demiurge concept that the, um, you know, that humanity is just in the body of the archons being digested and that this is the hell. This is hell in the sense of this world is hell, like that we're in the digestive fires, which is hell symbolically of some larger being. I'm not saying that that's an accurate cosmology <laughs> or ideology, but that's what they're saying here. He says time is the enemy of us all. Time is what enslaves us. And he's trying to end time but also thus end the uniqueness and the beginnings and ends of life and the story of your life and everything that makes you human. Basically he's purging the multivirus. He's forcing unity upon humanity and think, it's communism. I think I got a new name for this guy. Let's call him Kaisilion Musk. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Nice. Thank you. That's brilliant. Um, I was thinking about this, his eyes, why they would use those, that symbolism. And uh, Joshua would probably get down on this, but I remember I, the only thing I can think of is there, you know, I tried to like go back in storyline to see, like try and figure out what happened. Like when you see us, Something like that, it's clearly a symbol of something that happened in the past, right? His eyes were were scaled. Like there were scales on his eyes before. And Oh, and the scales on your eyes is a biblical idea too. Oh, scales yes. falling from your eyes so that you can see the truth. 
Thank you. Yes, exactly what I was talking about. Uh huh. So, okay, here's another thing I want to point out because in the chat, these artists said there's really no such thing as time. That is a construct here. Here's my two cents on that idea because I think it's actually super important to, to flesh out for understanding the, um, the mind hack that's being done because it's just like many movies where they're like trying to present the audience with a villain whose ideology they can actually agree with, even though they don't agree with his methods. And it's like a double reverse. This happens all the time. You know, the villain had kind of noble intentions. He's just going about it the wrong way. You know, the ends don't justify the means, but we should free humanity from time in some way. Just maybe not by being consumed by Dormammu, whatever. <laughs> so, okay. There is a problem in English is that there are many concepts that we use the same word for that are different concepts. Time is just like drugs in that sense. There are many different substances that can alter you on many levels and they're all called drugs, but pharmacia is not the same thing as herb herbalism, but it all could be construed as drugs. Love is the same way. Love could be lust in our conceptualization. Love could be agape universal love. Love could be attachment or love could simply be affection. Or love could be what it is at its highest order, which is the recognition and, and nurturing of potential in an unlimited way. So time is exactly like that. Time is a construct when it is artificially enforced, artificially tracked in a sense. So this is really important to the idea of alchemics, the alchemy of economics. Got into it in the Weaving Spiders episode. I'm going to get it. You'll hear me get into it in more detail whenever the episode I'm going to release with Emily Moyer comes out later this week. So I won't digress too far into it. And I'll try to put it in as simple terms as possible. There is natural time, the cycles of nature, the inevitability of change, which is what allows for the expression of our uniqueness and the refreshing of our spirit in the sense of every death is a rebirth. And then there is chronos time, you could call it. There is the enforcer version of time. There is the rat race running on a hamster wheel. So natural time is where we run on this circle of seasons and we go through the sky clock and there's a, we hit a beginning point and an end point and a rebirth. And thematically the hero's journey repeats, but it's new and unique in every expression. And it's never the same twice. And then there's go to work on Monday Go to work on Tuesday, go to work on Wednesday, go to work on Thursday, go to work on Friday, have two days off for the weekend, rinse, repeat, do the same work every day, come home and watch TV after you work, eat the same garbage food. This is fake time. This is the externalization of an internal process. So real time, the best way I can describe this is the fake time, the construct time is where the same thing happens, but nothing changes in terms of your spiritual development. Somebody could wake up one day and realize they spent 25, 30, 40, 50 years doing a job that meant nothing to them, that stifled their spiritual development. Nothing changed about who they were. In fact, they may be regressed because nature doesn't really allow for stasis. Things either going up or going down or degrading. There's entropy or centropy, levity or gravity. And then there's the real time which is your spiritual development. And that is abstract. 
because somebody can go through an experience that changes them utterly on the spiritual level. They, they evolve spiritually. They grow in leaps and bounds through one experiential process of synchronicity, of being in the flow, of surrendering to what universe actually wills for you. And thus is your higher will as well, rather than being caught in the hamster wheel rat race loop of repetition where nothing really grows, nothing really evolves, nothing really changes. You're trying to stay where you are perpetually forever out of a fear of what it would mean to change and what you would have to do to grow and evolve and take responsibility for where you're actually at. So we call both of those things time, but the only real time that actually exists is how you develop your spirit, how you evolve as a being and everything else that is a repetitious rat race hamster wheel is fake. It's artificial. It's your straw man's story. I didn't really do that concisely, but I feel like I fleshed it out. Yeah, dude. No, I like that. (laughs) It's it. uh, I was just telling somebody the other day that I'd I'd spent, I'd learned more in three months of walking in the desert behind my work than the 10 years of actually working. That's it. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. When you're, when you're doing it for yourself on your, on your, in that time where you're not looking at the clock every five minutes and you're spending time in nature, um, there's this thing. Oh no, I will, I will go down a rabbit hole that, that can't get out in this, but <laughs> we're already three hours in this and we knew it was going to go long, but we don't need to go. <laughs> That's go why I gave night. us an intermission, man. That really helped. I felt so refreshed by that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amazing. What three minutes can do. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, well, listen, yeah, we can jump forward. Uh, thanks for letting me rant for so long on the time thing, but I feel like that's so crucial to this whole thing oh, because he's, you know, yeah, so, so crucial so to this whole thing. This relates. Um, his quote where he says, where they, right here, where they're sucking him into this war, he says, I came here to heal my hands, not to fight in some mystical war. That, that was what you were talking about at the beginning. Like, you start... You start getting in this though, you're going, right. you're going to be a warrior. Yeah. You and realize that to heal you yourself are, is to join the spiritual war. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly. Is. You don't have a choice. Interesting. And also you, you don't know, have a choice, but you do have to choose it. It's a paradox. You have again. to choose it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's interesting. We're also, we're kind of dealing with the clean hands doctrine here too. Uh, with the hand washing is a theme in the beginning. And now he's like, you know, he's trying to wash his hands of this situation. Oh, and Gabriel, during his training sequences, he has his hands wrapped a lot. Right. They're partially concealed. And when he becomes full on Sorcerer Supreme, Dr. Strange at the end of the movie, uh-huh. unlike where we're at currently in the movie, at the final scene that he's shown in, uh-huh. wearing gloves. Interesting. Really? Yeah, when he's a full, you know, full adept and no longer, well, a master, really. You know, he's yeah. at the 33rd degrees, the touchless death. Touchless death gloves. Should wow. we? Should they're we, yellow, yeah. though. They're not white, but still, it is an important symbolism that he puts the glove. <laughs> the gloves were off, and now they're on. Should we uh, mention the mon- 
the mudras that he's using. Mudras, if you want to say something about mudras, I mean, that's hella relevant to the idea Dude. that your hands are a microcosm of your whole energy field. Good point. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, it, it, study mudras, it works. There's a reason he uses mudras where in the poster he's using this one. Mm-hmm. And when he's doing, um, when he's doing protection spells, it's like this. When he's doing, or no, protection spells are like this. Healing spells are like this. There's reasons yeah. for those. I have a, I have a Oracle deck over here of 72 mudras. Right. And I've tried out a lot of them and they work. And, they and work. there are even more than are in there. There's basically as many ways to hold your hand posture as you can imagine. <laughs> you know, like the limitation is on your imagination and on your flexibility. But if people are, you know, if people want to try a mudra right now, just to get a sense for how real that they are, how well they work. One of my favorites, it's not in that deck. I don't know where I learned it, but uh, I realized later after learning it that it's accurate to the ideas of uh, Chinese medicine and the meridian system is, okay, hold three fingers up and make a ring between your index finger and your thumb. Do that with both hands. And touch just the tips of your middle fingers together. Hold them at about chest level and start breathing deeply. And if you hold this mudra and take deep diaphragmatic breaths, you will feel that you are breathing more deeply and have a higher lung capacity than not using this mudra. It is a lungs mudra. You're, collect, you're connecting the electrical circuit of the meridian that runs through the tip of your middle finger it also runs to your lungs. It's awesome. <laughs> There's so many mudras. They're freaking sweet. That's one of my favorite ones. I hope people remember that one. It's great for, you know, anytime you need like a, you need a, you need a chill a second. That's like a millisecond where you chill. If you need a chill a second, <laughs> take some deep breaths with that mudra. And within like three breaths, you're going to be in a whole different headspace than stress or whatever was plaguing you before. Yeah, they were great call. I mean, mudras mm-hmm. is so important to bring into this weave, even just to touch on, because that's like a real magical art. Yeah. If magic a- is the science of changing your consciousness or changing the feeling that you hold through your will and intent, then mudras are one of the most magical things you could ever do. And movements, the movements too. Like you learn those for the movements themselves are, are a type of mudra, mm-hmm. which I think is, essentially is what whole body mudra. Those lines in the eye of Agamotto, that's what I think, personally, I think they are. I think that's, that's your, your movements because it looks like the path of two hands to me of going. Zerlath you know, made a great point. Italians talk with their hands. Yeah, dude, I was, oh, hey, uh, I've been narrating audiobooks, you know. So the other day, I, uh, in one of the chapters, I found myself it was a particularly like uh, exciting moment in the story. And I found myself talking with my hands and I was like, wow, I'm way better at narrating this when I talk with my hands. And I should remember that for podcasting too, but I'm usually like hands on the controls, ready to click on a thing or another. Anyway, digression aside. Okay. So he gets stabbed. He portals himself to, after this fight, he portals himself to the hospital he used to work at to find Christ, Ian Palmer, his ex, his old flame. And get her to operate on him to save his life because his lungs are filling with fluid or something from the stab wound he got. And um, he talks to her through his astral body and helps her with the procedure. 
But what I wanted to point out is relevant for this moment is that he gets attacked by one of the other bad guys that was the initiate an adept following <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> this guy attacks him in astral form and it's uh it's kind of silly. They get into a spiritual fist fight. But what I thought was cool was that the uh when he's in this spiritual fist fight, he's starting to lose and he's flatlining, so she hits him with the paddles and the electricity in his body actually transfers to his energy body and like so he it energizes his spiritual astral body. And I love that because I do think in my experience with doing the biofield stuff that I do and working with sound, which is electricity, that electricity, that when we think about like this distinction between spirit and matter, there really isn't one. Energy is energy. Matter is energy and spirit is energy. And electricity actually translates to the realm of spirit that like layers of your body, like the astral body or the energy body are conducive to electricity that they are electric in and of themselves. And I like that that's revealed in this movie. I felt like that was a, a cool truth that they hinted at. I mean, they were just trying to make some flashy movie scene fight scene, but they're telling you something there that your, your energy body is electric, that you have an electric body. Hey, that's something I want to touch on too. Like as far as the whole kind of understanding of these, when we watch these, you know, there are signals to, to stuff that comes up in the future. Now, whether the writer of that is pulling from ether or they're telling us because they're signaling us or it's that, that revelation of the method or predictive programming, all of those things can be true. That the writer, the person who is writing this story, they don't completely have a the understanding, but they're in flow, right? When they're in flow, truth comes out a lot of times, no matter what. And we find out later on that, that, that thing is true. Often. Um, I use that, that uh, comic book story where the guy was writing the planet of the apes and he was, he was inking the same exact story that was happening to him and his wife in a during a home invasion when it actually happened this happened in the 70s i can't remember who what writer it was but i know uh chris knowles brings it up a couple times and i'd read it in other uh history of comic books that's what makes the whole synchromysticism thing so sticky right a lot of us will sort of jump to the conclusion that like predictive programming look at them but man Mm -hmm. spirit comes through things Mm -hmm. that weren't you know, like maybe revelation of the method isn't really an intention of controllers and really like they just can't hide the truth because mm-hmm. the truth is like the sun. It is it is there. No matter how many fake ass clouds you spray in front of it, there's still a sun. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I totally dig on that for sure. So I try not to like fall onto one side or the other unless it's just so clearly obvious that the intention was being put there as a programming or or whatever. You know, sometimes it's really obvious, but I do totally leave more room for that belief because it happens in my own art. I'll make a big, crazy mega doodle and I'll notice stuff in it that I didn't intend to be in there, but is like symbolically mind blowing. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a cool scene, you know, um, because if you're going to do, if you're going to 
do astral travel or anything like that, like in, in reality, protect yourself, you know, be ready for that before you even try. And, and I think that's one of the lessons in, in this that we can actually take is that you, you're going to, if you go down these roads, you know, you may find something that could possibly scare you out of the whole thing or could make you powerful as fuck and they can't fuck with you anymore. So take into consideration what you're doing before you do it, but protect yourself. Learn protection first. Learn your protection spells. Learn your, your prayers. It's as simple as intent. Do your grounding. Well, it's as simple as intent and grounding. Yes. Being electrically coherent and being electrically coherent means that your intentions will hold strong, you know? Also, I'll point out. It doesn't have to be hella complicated is what I mean. I mean, like people don't need to think they got to go learn some magical system in order to protect themselves. It's just like health, Mm -hmm. (laughs) health and health and uh, clarity of intent and and purity of your spiritual, uh, well, intent, really. And Keep also a clean temple. purity of heart. That's that's also why the banishing rituals were in the beginning. Those were- funny thing too was the point out of how when he was getting into the book of Cagliostro and uh-huh. they're chastising him for it, and they're like, "You could break reality. You're tampering with natural law." And he's, the joke is made like they really should put the warnings before the spells. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Good stuff. Okay, so what comes next is he um, he confronts the Ancient One with Mordo there, and he calls her out for channeling from the Dark Dimension. And Mordo is mortified by this revelation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mordo's actually a villain of against Doctor Strange in the comics, and so he's being set up to go down that path, if it wasn't clear to people who've seen the movie. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what, what he says. He says when he's talking about things that tamper with the natural law or behavior like the ancient ones channeling of energy from the dark dimension to unnaturally extend her life. He says the bill comes due. Coming due. Time is up. Pay the bail. You pay bail because you're going to be in prison because you committed a crime against the natural law. Bill and bail. We're talking about the bell. <laughs> right. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, it's ding. time. And I got to point out, in the, very, in the intro, like the very beginning of the movie was a bell ringing. Uh, there have been many bells throughout, but it, just a, a quick point was the guy that in Strange's operation scene in the beginning, he's uh, playing games with a fella named Billy. They're doing trivial pursuit on over life and death situations. They're playing games of trivial pursuit while somebody's life is in his hands on the operating table. Later on, while he's driving along the highway, like a video game, he's talking to Billy on the phone, making deals with what, what thrill is he going to accept in his next contracts. And that's when he goes reeling over the cliff. So the bill coming due 
is uh, just an interesting theme, very uh-huh. subtly woven uh, throughout the whole story. And doesn't he turn down the uh, the? So he's talking to Billy on the phone, and there's a little set up, Easter egg set up there where he talks about the injuries that he could take on, right? Yes. And there was a guy that got smashed up in an experimental suit of armor. Right. Yeah, that was War Machine getting fucked up during the Civil War, Captain America. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but didn't he, didn't he turn that down? Yeah, because it wasn't interesting enough. It wasn't interesting enough, right? Exactly. Or maybe it was like too risky. He doesn't. He has that fear of failure, so he won't take on something that he could fail. But mm. the the contract he decided that was interesting right before he careened off the cliff was to take on. Uh oh, here's a little hint at the theme of dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, he was willing to take on a contract for somebody who had a brain implant to electrically regulate their schizophrenic tendencies that had gone haywire, and the brain implant needed to be like removed or repaired or something. He was like, "That's interesting." That's the kind of thing he was willing to support to be a part of. Very, very interesting. You call JB Billy as William Will I Am? Yes, who is definitely a. Fucking player. I hate that guy. Will I am? Oh, God. <laughs> fucking we don't, cool. Say not. Say not where he's from. Yes. No, no. I will not. <laughs> um, that, is, that is fascinating, Chance. I, how did I miss that? That's what the... It happens fast. He's driving quick. You know, you're watching a sports car. Yeah. Wow. It's just a lot of these things are just quick little... Snap, blink and you'll miss it. The Hidden Sun, <laughs> Book of the Hidden Sun. What? What did they say? Oh, movies continuing. Right. A lot of stuff like that. Yeah. That's that's how trauma-based mind control works, man. They traumatize you and get you back to work. Get back to work. Get back to work. Boom. Get you back to work. Get you back to work. Get you back to work. Boom. Get you back to work. Get you back to work. You don't have time mm-hmm. to think about what just fucking happened to you when you watch somebody die. You don't have time to do it. And they'll, and they'll distract you with something else. Hey, man, you're going to get that thing done? You got to get that thing done before five. Yeah. And that happens so all the time. What happens next is they get attacked again by the bad guys. And Strange decides to try to pull them into the... He pulls the bad guys into the mirror dimension, thinking that that would be a smart move to help them escape help the um, them not be able to destroy the physical sanctum that they were attacking. Because from the mirror dimension, they can't alter the physical reality. Then what happens is it's revealed that because they're connected to the dark dimension, they're actually more powerful in the mirror dimension. And they can, they can uh, alter it in ways that non-Dormammu-connected sorcerers cannot. So the Sorcerer Supreme, the Ancient One, gets into a fight with Elon Musk <laughs> on this flower of life that she creates as their their disc for their arena of combat. And right in the middle, you got the hexagon. They're both the Saturnian figures. You know, one is kind of like the good, the the mother of. It's basically okay. It's basically the mother of darkness and the son of the father of darkness. Yeah, yeah. Is who they're fighting because she is, she is the dark ma, and uh, 
I'll get into that later. I just wanted to point out the flower of life symbolism as their arena of combat here. You know, uh, because wow. it's interesting what happened. This is a, this is an inversion in my opinion, because this flower of life is the pattern that the uh, cellular life and like all of the life fractal uh-huh. expresses in this pattern as a generative principle of growth and expansion and mitosis. And what they are doing in this scene is having a fight to the death. Right. They're fighting to the death on the symbol of life. It's an, in, it's an inversion as fuck. Yeah. And something oh. else, this is a minor detail. We probably won't go into oh. this, but those are actual street names of actual locations on that shield. You can actually see uh, ge- geographic locations. Wow. Uh, in detail there. One looks like it says circle and Wall Street. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Dude, Wall Street. Yeah. Oh. There's a lot of. I uh, like wonder what the Y hybrid. and the K is there for repeated also. Y2K. Oh. <laughs> y to the K to the I'm guessing it's from K. New York. It's the Y and the K of New York, but holy yeah. shit. Good call on the Wall Street. Oh. And uh, hard to make out what all of them say, but. And you, also, I'm noticing an upside down cross in each one of these petals. Yeah. Which is very reminiscent to me to the Jesuit IHS symbol. But yeah, a lot going on in that picture. Cool. Just doing a quick gematria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why is a dematriologically a seven? Seven. Or a two in full reduction. Oh. And a K is an 11. Or a two. Or a two or a seven, depending on, re- if you do reverse, it could be a seven. So anyway, oh, with a, with a, yeah, it's kind of just interesting. We won't linger on that. No need to linger on that. Yep, yep, yep. Why in the K was repeated. Lots of Y2K. So. Oh, key. K-Y keys. The keys of Solomon there. Yeah. It's a good one too. In reverse. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she loses this fight and she's saying she can't see past this moment. She, she's on the surgery table about to die and she leaves her body and strange leaves his body. And they, they basically expand the moment by going into the astral dimension where time passes differently and they have their final conversation. And um, this is the point where I want to make the final observations about the ancient one that she's drawing power from door Mamu. All right. She is Celtic. The Celtic mystical tradition, their, their adepts were called the Druids. Druid means door. She's drawing power from door mamu. Door ma. Mu or mama. (laughs) The door to darkness. She's about to step through a door into darkness in the sense that she can't see the future past this point. She's seen all the futures up to this point. She can't see past it. She's about to go through the doorway of death. And when she passes through that door, now that that door is opened, the very next scene is Dormammu coming into the dimension. The dark door of darkness is open. So 
She really is. I'm I'm really thinking, even though she's kind of portrayed as the good guy here and she's this teacher, she is the terrible goddess. She's the dark ma. She's the one who's been sacrificing her children, you know, for extending her power in this moment. In the sense that she's holding back her children, not teaching them the full truth yes. and uh, profiting off of her knowledge differential to remain in her position as the supreme one, Sorcerer Supreme. Um, this is a female Illuminati thing, for sure, symbolically. I mean, she's literally the one who owns the castr- the, the, the Osirian phallus. She own- she's the one who's been keeping the Eye of Agamotto. Agamotto. Yes. Uh, it is. It's a, da- it's a damn shame, but apparently, you know, uh, in, it's, it's kind of encapsulated in this moment where she, uh, he has a whole shift of perspective. She says, it's no, it's not really about you. Uh, kind of has that, uh, takes a bit of a, you could say an anti-individualist position. Yeah, she's she's teaching him the lesson of the messiop. Of she's the saying messiah. she's teaching him what he needs to do to fulfill the Christ metaphor later on, which is yes. you got to learn how to sacrifice yourself for everybody else. That's what makes you a hero, which is what all of Hollywood has been teaching us since the beginning of Hollywood. And all of Hollywood stems from what tradition again? What is the <laughs> Hollywood? Isn't that the wand that the Druids? used yeah. uh wasn't the, the so the druidic tradition was a was corrupted and cannibalized by this cult of hell this soul invictus cult in the form of rome when that happened when rome came in and wiped them out That's and right. since then and from time immemorial the primary method of mind control that the priest class of the cult of hell or helios or soul invictus has used has been Theater. In fact, in Greek, the theater, the hypocrites, literally that's called hypocrites. They're the actors, Hippocrates. Uh Uh, They they were the priest class. The priest class actually were the ones that acted in the theaters back in the day. Mm -hmm. And And it's the same today. It's just hidden from us. It's occulted. It's behind a silver screen. And Drew Wood. This is wood that is Drew upon. Drew Wood. Wow. Yeah, the paper world. The world of fiction. You got Mm. it. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) Yeah. I hope that like as much as we've taken our time and expanded and fleshed out a lot of these thoughts, I'm happy to imagine that much of what could be said is laying below the surface for the audience to be inspired to think about on their own. You know, if people watch this movie again or for the first time, I think they'll see a lot of the stuff that we're talking about and more than we're able to say even in four hours. But right. yeah, thank you for saying this is a great flow, Jenny. I agree. This has been a great flow. We're getting close yeah. to the end, guys. Right on. Yeah. Doing so great. Kurt Kallenbach, he touched on a really important issue, uh, I feel, uh, just recently. Uh, on, I think it was on the Crow Triple Seven show. Yeah, I haven't caught it yet. I oh, know yeah. it came back. I just caught that. Yeah. He, and I'm going to mess up. I'm going to miss the quote horribly. I'm going to say it all wrong. But essentially, he says that no law can spring forth 
from the doing of harm. And so the cutting of the child away from the placenta, even the uh, even circumcision, all of these things, these are harm. And there is entire law and construct and reality that is formulated based upon that harm that was done originally. Um, and so I just thought I would bring that forward because uh, that is something I believe that is kind of a metaphor for what the ancient one uh, represents here, where we find out that uh, she was do, drawing on dark energies. Therefore, everything she taught had a fundamental flaw to it. Uh, and everybody who uh, had her in such high regard now is going to have to rethink the foundation of everything they came to believe, uh, thanks to her. Uh, so, yeah, in an interesting way, I think that she's like a metaphor for Cybele, which is the uh, a goddess that is, civility is founded upon. And this is where uh, castration and circumcision uh, is uh, derives from those cults, those cult practices. So uh, people like the ancient one would say it's a necessary evil, something along those lines. Uh, but that's for everybody to choose how they're going to process that, much like Mordo ends up doing. Yeah, buddy. Cybele is Rhea. Yeah. Rhea is the consort to Kronos. Oh, she's like, oh, oh, oh. And to just further that point, Kronos and Rhea are the god and goddess of fortresses. They are literally depicted with fortresses on their crown. And what does the ancient one protect? The sanctums, fortresses. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good weave. That is hmm. a very good weave. <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting. There's so like we're doing a lot, but we could we could if we revisited this later and just started where we left off, there would be we'd find even more. But really what it is, is that it's sparking us to draw upon the knowledge we already had. It's not like this is in the movie beyond a symbolic level, but the symbolism has just existed forever and continually repeats itself because the universe is trying to get us to see the pattern that we've been stuck in, the time loop we've been trapped in, the fake time loop that we've been trapped in playing out the same the same uh, artificial straw man story forever. Yeah, this has been great. Okay, let's continue on. The uh, big action finale scene, they go to Hong Kong, where the bad guy has already destroyed the sanctum when they get there, and the dark dimension is entering into the realm. So wait, you're telling me that in 2016, there's a movie where the... The Demiurge, the Kronos, the Crown, the the Bad Sun, the Corona is infecting the world through this open wound with its spike protein viral balls and it's originating in China? Wait, yep. what? Yep. Here we go. <laughs> There's your cooties. Hmm. Cooties in, starting in China. What do you know? Three years advance notice. Yeah. So there it is. All right. Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) It even looks like good job. It's so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, 
you know, and just to remind everyone, the first scene that we saw Dr. Strange in in this movie is him washing his hands and putting a mask on. Oh, wow. And you know what? Uh, uh, to some degree, Kong, Kong makes me think of a gong. And the first, because the beginning was a bell in Asia, you know, in up in Tibet, uh, supposedly. Okay, so next, um, he reverses the flow of time and stops the dark dimension from coming in. But the uh, the opening is still there. And he goes into the opening, Strange does, to confront Dormammu. And in the ultimate Christ symbolism, he uses the Eye of Agamotto, his control over time, to fight the time virus, if you will, by creating an infinite loop of him showing up to bargain with Dormammu. And Dormammu swats him like a fly, kills him. But then the moment repeats because he cast a spell to cause an infinite time loop. So basically, the Messiah is complete. You know, the yearly death and rebirth of the Son of God, S-O-N-S-U-N, has been created. The Kronos time loop, the artificial time loop, has been established. And this is how he defeats Dormammu. Because... Dormammu becomes his prisoner in the sense that he can never escape this moment. You know, he's mm-hmm. been infected with time, basically. He's been infected with the coronavirus, the time virus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because he exists in a dimension where there is where it's timeless and he's eternal. So yeah, the Messiah is complete. He's he's learned his ultimate lesson as the Christ metaphor that in the in the eso the exoteric version of the Christian theology that I think has caused so much harm to the world, the focus and emphasis on the, the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice and the literalism of all that, the historicism of all that and missing all the beautiful allegory and metaphor about actually rendering back to Caesar. What is Caesar's giving your straw man back sacrificing what is fake, not what is something real, not, not your real life. You know, the, the Christ is meant to dwell within. That's about becoming a vessel for life force energy and integrity, becoming a light to the world by being healthy. Jesus Christ means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is the eternal self-existing life force energy of the cosmos. No beginning, no end in a sense. <laughs> so by creating this false time loop, it's like, it's almost like chaining Jehovah to fiction which is what happens when our divine spark is trapped in the loop of the rat race of the, the sacrificing ourselves to others rather than, because if we all basically it's like this, if we all sacrifice ourselves to the collective, then we're all dead. If everybody took care of themselves and followed the natural law or followed Jehovah, there would be salvation because we would all be healed and healthy. If we all had the Christ or the Christos within as in the light of the divine spark in the form of healthy bioelectricity that is not leaking or being vampirized or being offered as a, as a blood sacrifice, the world would be a different place. We wouldn't need laws of the government. We wouldn't need, we wouldn't need protection from anything or anyone. We would all be our own savior. And that is what the inversion is of this film and every other that perpetuates this communism messiop of, you know, you got to get your cowpoke. You know, you got to wear your mask. I'm wearing my mask for you. You wear your mask for me. All that bullshit. 
Right. Beautiful, man. Yeah, but nice work. Big time. Uh, but that's how he defeats him. He just puts him in this time loop forever, perpetually, and then Dormammu eventually submits and is like, okay, I'll leave. Fine. Jeez. This is terrible. Which is all kind of a metaphor for weaponizing repetition. You know, if uh, the, the last time when Doctor Strange gets set up high enough that he can see the uh, the arc of the flat Earth, he sees the MK Ultra butterfly symbol. Now he's up in this higher dimension, and he's traumatizing Dormammu. He's torturing Dormammu with time and redundancy. And here he is just to drive the point home uh-huh. with his arms in the, the cross position and the green light of the heart shining at his heart level. It's a good movie, but only if you can ignore the fact that it repeats the same bullshit programming of <laughs> of uh, savior, external savior as every other movie in the world. If you can look past that, it's pretty good. Right. Well, and that's that's all of these, right? Yeah. But like uh, this one and Ragnarok are my favorite just because, I mean, they're still fun. Ragnarok's just dumb fun. I mean... Yeah, that's what Alpha Warrior uh, Mike Winter was saying. Is like this and and Ragnarok are my favorite Marvel movies, and I totally oh, agree. Ragnarok is totally. hella fun. Totally, yes. so fun. I'm actually super excited for Love and Thunder, Thor four. Me I'm glad too. they're doing it. I'm I'm actually excited about the next uh, Doctor Strange. Because oh, me too. I'm don't get me wrong. I'm excited about that. That's part of why we're doing this is so that later in the year we can be ready to do. Yeah. Doctor Strange too, because it's probably going to be cool. Very the hell. I just so do we it. have any uh, closing thoughts or or questions from our audience? Maybe been going pretty long and strong, but we're about close to you know within a few minutes we'll be about at the point of the same length as the last stream, so that's kind of cool. I just love pointing out the fact that this is three years before the CV broke out, and that's. Basically, he's floating around in space, jumping from coronavirus to coronavirus, fighting Dormammu. It is so funny. It's so funny. So a bit on the nose. (laughs) This is an artistic rendition. (laughs) This is the original artistic rendition. Yeah, Doctor Strange 2, Zeralath is pointing out that they're doing... um... The Marvel version of the Illuminati will be in that. That is true. Nice, nice. Oh yeah, it it, and they're making no bones about it. No, if you know the Marvel Illuminati, it starts with with uh, Iron Man and Professor X and Doctor Strange. So, yeah, but which is oh. kind of cool because we're gonna get mutants, man. Mutants. Oh, okay. here's a really good question uh, from Joshua. Is it fair to say that Doctor Strange completed the great work or the Babylon working or something? Uh, yes, I wanted to point out that this is the point of Crowley contacting Iwas. Yes. Or Mamu is the symbolically Iwas that Crowley contacted supposedly. Thank because at this you. point, here's, here's why I say that. Because it is part of the mythos of Crowley that when he contacts Iwas, that, that opens up or when, when Jack Parsons does the Babylon working or something from both of those events combined, 
is part of what opened the door to the UFO flap and the gray aliens and all of this shit, which I kind of look at as myth more than truth. But in a sense, what he does here, it is alluded that he's he's caused a fracturing in the timeline by fucking with time so heavily using the eye of Agamotto. And so what is happening following this, the next Doctor Strange movie is the multiverse of madness. He's opened up, he's broken down the barriers. He's opened a portal to other dimensions that he didn't shut. And that is exactly what it is. Uh, Crowley is accused of having done and, and Jack Parsons as well. Yes. Great. Okay. I got a, I got a great call, Joshua. Thank you. We needed to say that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to riff on this just a little more. Right before this scene where he comes to face Dormammu in Hong Kong, he's having his his love interest. She's relieving the pressure from his myocardial sac. That that is absolutely the uh, stored up Kundalini energy. It's also what happens when you get the cowpoke. Yeah. Yep. You get a swollen heart. Heart's <laughs> yes. too big. Yes. It's so crazy how predictive the whole film mm. is. But yeah, the swollen heart, the procedure, the remedy, all in seeking of, for remedy. It's both sex magic and uh, uh, iatrogenesis. Oh, and on the biofield side, too. Uh-huh. See how this, his heart is illuminated here? It's the chakra that stands out in a sense. Man, I've run into this before in people's energy field when doing sound healing work. There are sometimes people that you that I have worked with that their heart chakra, you know how like the Grinch, his heart was two sizes too small. Uh-huh. Some people, their heart chakra is two sizes too big. And wow. what it represents is it's, I think, very connected to this sort of uh, messiah that you got to be the savior of the world, that you got to sacrifice yourself for others because that leads you to grief and pain. But people have the story of themselves being the hero in their own story and they got to keep pushing forward. And this grief and pain from all the self that they've sacrificed from their youth that they've given up to do what they thought was the right thing to be a part of whatever vampiric rat race hamster wheel of fake time that the grief and pain goes unprocessed. It goes unfelt. And it swells up. The energy swells up in their heart chakra where that is at. And it steals life force from their will, their solar plexus. It steals life force energy from their throat, their ability to speak the truth. It steals life force from the other chakras in general. And it's like a bottleneck. I mean, any of the chakras can bottleneck, but I've definitely seen that dynamic of the self-sacrificing type. Um, And they often usually will have a, uh, a resentment sometimes depending on if the balance is off to the left or the right. If they're off balance to the right, they often will get a, a resentment um, that the feels like people in the world are constantly like they're under attack by other people's negativity and strange definitely plays out that particular belief and dynamic in, in some ways, you know, he's like some, in some sense, like the victim of other people's, manipulations when he's like, I just came here to heal my hands and now you're putting me into a spiritual war. Yeah. So I could, I could say more about that, but big time, big time, uh, swollen heart chakra is a thing that sometimes people have. But and then they got to really feel it. They got to like cry. You got to cry it out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the work that you have to get through is the agreement that you will be the warrior. 
Oh, and it's that artificial uh, neon green too. Like we pointed out in Spider-Man No Way Home a bunch, which is definitely related to the Corona programming as it's portrayed in news media. That's right. The uh, neon toxic green. Oh, how did we miss that? (laughs) Nice. Hmm. Very cool. Hey, um, how, how far are we to, uh, finishing up the movie? That's basically the end. I mean, there's some more after that, but that's my last screenshot that I have. Time back and forth. I don't remember what the, what the, uh, Easter egg was in this, but the Easter egg was, um, actually a scene from Thor two, where Thor comes to the sanctum sanctorum because he's looking for Loki. Oh, right, Strange the is like, oh, so if I help you find Loki, you'll leave. It's actually a scene directly pulled from Thor too. It's not really its own Easter egg. And then the, the prelude scene that is setting up future possible Dr. Strange movies is showing that Mordo has become a villain and he goes and steals the magical essence from the, uh, the, the crippled guy who was using magical power to walk. Right. Because he's like, the world has too many sorcerers and he's going around psychic energy vampirizing people's magical power. And so Mordo is being set up to be a future Doctor Strange villain as he would have been in the comic. Hmm. I hope they bring in Doctor Voodoo or Brother Voodoo. Brother Voodoo. I think they changed it because it was too black power at the time. Brother Voodoo. Now it's Doctor Voodoo. I don't care. Mm-hmm. It was a cool character. Uh, Voodoo Doctor magician guy which is actually very very cool i hope they bring him in but he and clea um which is his his uh sorceress wife later on i hope they bring her in um one of the things that that kept coming up too was the breath oh god look at that yeah, it's just another good shot that, of the dark dimension. We're we're pretty much talking about cooties here, y'all. Dude, that's exactly how they showed it in the all that fake ass media originating in Hong original, Kong, baby. Original it's China, China, China. It's the China virus. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It anyway, go, go ahead, Gabe. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to, I was just going to say like this whole thing of, of we keep coming around to breathing and the breath being the power being in your breath and the masks being forced on us to take our breath away because that's where our power is. That's where your, your power of it, your power's in your diaphragm. And you're breathing, and that's how that's how we can can control those those fields, right? Chances through through the breath, and you know this from and feeling. So, okay, I watched your capoeira thing, and it it hit me that these guys are feeling their energy between them, their torsions. Uh-huh. Like that's what that's what I'm seeing with that with that capoeira movement is the the torsions. It's like like chance you're talking about the swinging of the balls and the fire and and all that it's all the torsion fields that we're our actual body is made up of yeah buddy for sure guys i think we nailed it tonight yeah man fantastic 
Uh, if people are curious what we're going to do next, the plan currently is to dig into Moon Knight, ambitious as that is, being uh, longer than a two-hour movie. It's more like we're in the three to four-hour range because it's a six-episode show. But if possible, I'm going to see if we can get Howdy McCoskey to join the Marvelous Demystifiers for a, as a special guest for that episode. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, that would be awesome. And so it might be if we do that... Less of a um, scene by scene breakdown, although it's fun to do it that way and maybe more general, but we'll see. Just wanted to give everybody a bit of a teaser there that Moon Knight's probably where we're going next. And hopefully we'll get Howdy in, in the mix too, because he's only watching it because we talked about it on Interverse and he was like, oh shit, <laughs> they corrupted the Egyptian wisdom, y'all. Which is so cool to watch. Anybody has Sorry to tell that? you, Moon Knight requires you to pay the big D for their plus subscription. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't watch it. Don't pay them. I'm not telling you don't, to. Don't do it. You sorry. can watch it and don't pay them. Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. There's thing. probably ways. There are okay, ways watch it, but don't pay them. There you go. Or if you're lazy like me, just give them the six bucks. <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> you guys got anything to say to finish up? Uh no, I uh this was fun. I'm really looking. I'm glad we get this out of the way so we can clear the runway for the a lot of projects coming down the pipe here with uh, uh Moon Knight, MK Moon Knight, and uh, MK Ultra, yeah, and definitely the Doctor Strange, whatever the next one. What's it? What's the title of the next Multiverse, Multiverse of Madness? Of Madness. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. M O M, Mom. <laughs> the Dark Ma. Dark, Dark Ma's coming back. There it is, y'all. This has been awesome. Uh, I'm going to play my cool music video again because why not? And that'll be the end of the stream. Much love, everybody. Thanks, right, brother. Thank you. Couldn't thank do this you without again. you. You guys make my life more complete. Love you both. Much love, y'all.